everybody. Wow, another amazing episode. Whether you loved it or hated it or somewhere in between, can't deny that a lot happened. It was just really kind of a blur. But watching it the second time, it just, you know, I just was like, wow, all these things happened in this episode. <laughs> so many things. After the second time I watched it, I feel I still felt like I hadn't watched it all yet. <laughs> I watched it a third time. <laughs> so to start off, I'll, I'll say that uh, it was a surprise, sort of, to see the man who's directed the most ever episodes of the comedy show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia direct one of the most you know, epic episodes of Game of Thrones ever. But this episode maybe felt more like what I would expect from Matt Shackman. A lot of snappy dialogue, a lot of humor, more humor than average, I think. Some self-referential referential jokes thrown in there for good measure, one or two of those. A lot of callbacks, which It's Always Sunny does a lot of, and... You know, some nostalgia, which Sonny does a little of that, but th that's one of the cool things about having a show in season seven is you can actually have nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The characters can be like, remember that time five years ago or five seasons ago where we did this and that? <laughs> like, oh yeah, y'all did that. I wonder a lot of times what the, what the exact interplay or role between the writers and the directors are. Yeah, know? me too, I, yeah. I, I remember reading an article about this season where it was one of the actors, I think, said that Sometimes they would play around with the dialogue, test out a few lines, go with what works. But that this time they're a little bit more regimented. No, no, just stick to the script. But I wonder how much Matt Shackman gets to adjust the script to do these self-referential self flashback callback things like it doesn't always sunny here. Or if the show writers were doing that themselves. Or if the show writers picked him because they knew that he would work with that well or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I would say this was was kind of an epic episode, just not in a spectacular way. It wasn't like battles, you know. It was visually beautiful. There were a lot of amazing shots, but it wasn't like action-oriented. It was really a setup episode for the it's, final two. It's the type of episode I can imagine more casual fans being like, ah, no battle, no sex scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas us fans are like, what? Rigors who? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, I, actually, I certainly exclaimed out loud during that. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Sam. Go back to the book. <laughs> I've been calling this episode hashtag reunion bowl, but it's also hashtag father's bowl. So I mean, let's just run through it real fast. Bronn and Tyrion. Jamie and Tyrion. Tyrion and Jorah. Jorah and Danny. Gendry and Davos. Gendry and the Brotherhood. Sandor and Jon, which that one's maybe... Eh, they didn't really have a conversation for us. So maybe we can toss that one out. But Thoros and Jorah also. That's another one. Not something we saw on screen, but something that we know right. happened from in their the past. past. Yeah, from the Greyjoy Rebellion. They, they charged through the breach like at the same time. They were like the first two guys getting through. And honorable mention to Jon finding out that Arya and Bran are alive. So that's it's not a reunion, but he's you know that's warms the heart. <laughs> except that he received really it awful so, news at the same so time. It was so heartwarming. He rushed straight home to see them. <laughs> wait, hold, wait. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also an episode about fathers, right? There was major mentions of fathers and fatherhood and the past in that regard, mostly around fathers, not mothers in this particular case. Although there was a little bit of that in there, but. Gior Mormont was brought up by both Tormund and Tyrion. Uh, Ned Stark was brought up by Gendry and John, kind of incidentally, and uh, I think maybe one other time. Rhaegar Targaryen was flat out brought up by Gilly and referred to kind of incidentally by Gendry when he thought he was talking to John about their fathers. Yeah. Of course, the subtext is who his father really was. I guess maybe you could debate the definition of father. You know, sure, yeah, father and sire. Who raised you your whole life. That's, you know, you call that your father. Either way, it suggested both Rhaegar and Ned in that right. scene. Of course, Ares comes up a lot in this episode from Varys, from Daenerys, from Tyrion. A lot of people mention Ares, in including 
you know, Randall Tarley even brings him up. And Randall Tarley is another himself. one who gets yeah. mentioned a lot. He gets mentioned by several people. Sam even quotes him. When Sam is leaving the Citadel, he says, I'm tired of, you know, reading about the, the works of better men, which is something that uh, Randall, Randall said. Po- prodded him with. Yeah. And, of course, Tywin as well. And Robert. Both of them were mentioned a lot. Gendry, of course. Robert. That's obvious. And then Davos brings it up in front of John, Or tells him not to bring it up in front of John, And then he does, <laughs> rather. And then Tywin the brought... Way, all three times when I watched that, I laughed each time at that moment. <laughs> Davos' reaction right there, and the fact that Gendry just insta-does it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Tywin's, of course, brought up by Jamie and Tyrion, and then again with Jamie and Cersei. So it's just the fatherhood theme was really strong, and then, of course, Jamie finds out he's a father. Yeah. <laughs> to put a cherry on top. A new a father again. He was, for a little while, he was out of the fatherhood game, and now he's right back <laughs> as neat as that was, it's it also brings up something. I don't want to be too negative because I love this show and they're doing so much with it, but it's a little disappointing that it would be hard for them to have an episode with a bunch of nods to the matriarchs. There just aren't as many. We don't even there know the names many. of a bunch of these characters' moms, you know? Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I mean, we did get a little bit of a nod to Catelyn there when and Sansa and Arya were in the bedroom, you yeah. know, and mm-hmm. talked about that was the mother's bedroom. But, but that's like a 12 to 1 ratio. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. This is really about father. So many of these fathers were really, really powerful people. And, you know, in the realm of Westeros, it's harder for a woman to get power. Though we're seeing that in the show. Like in the modern, current times, there's quite a few women mm-hmm. in power. Even aside from their level of power, though, how many of these characters do we literally not even know who their moms are, you know? Quite a few. Like, some of them we just know, like, what family they were a part of without knowing their name. And uh, some other ones, uh, we do know their name without many details. Yeah, it's, uh... Anyway, if any writers out there are listening... uh... And a lot of them, (laughs) a lot of them died, you know, before. Like, for example, both people like to make a, like to point to the fact that John, Tyrion, and Danny were all thirds, the third child. You know, of their, uh, you know, Rhaegar's third child is John, and Tyrion's third, Tyrion's the third child of Tywin and Joanna, and, well, presumably, and same thing with Daenerys. She's the third child of, of, uh, Rhaella and Ares, and they all, their mothers died giving birth to them. So that's long been a thing that people have used to connect them, and uh, so that's kind of cool. So that's, that's one of the problems is they were, George wrote so many of their mothers to be dead, and yeah. <laughs> that's like, okay, well. <laughs> um, we have a few announcements before we get started. We have a, f- a bit more than the usual number of announcements, so apologize for that. Uh, bear with us for a minute here. These are all pretty important things. For example, we did a episode on Saturday with a big help from Ashea. LML from the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast, and I did a co-episode about the symbols in the cave. Mostly it's a book-to-show episode. It's mostly taking those symbols and kind of interpreting what they mean for the books and a lot of other things. The thing is, it's video only. This is something we haven't done in a long time, and it's just because the episode is really visual. So if you're listening to this on podcast, you're not going to see it in your feeds. You need to go to YouTube if you want to see it. And we apologize for that, but that's really, once you, if you do come to watch the episode, you'll see why it's, it's video only. It's just, we put a lot of images in it. It just doesn't work as an audio only thing. We're constantly referring to things that, like, what's he talking about? What's the symbol? So yeah, it just doesn't work as an audio only, but that's not going to be a regular thing. We're going to almost near 98% of our episodes are going to be released on both feeds. The central point of that was to talk about the symbols in the cave, which is all visual. Right? Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, and we relate it to the birth of the others, or the children of the forest, and not the birth of, rather, the birth of the White Walkers, relating it to the children, relating that to a lot of ancient, ancient history. It's good stuff. You all should check it out if you haven't already. 
Also, I want to announce the Kialo tournament. This is a really big deal. There is, you'll, you're going to have to check out Kialo to get the full picture. Kialo is K-I-A-L-O. We're going to post links up to it. So you keep an eye out for those. But this is a debate tournament, structured debate tournament, not the kind of debate you're thinking of, not two people going at it at a podium or something, not people writing back and forth. One, you create your own debate. You make your own pros and cons for your argument. No one else is involved. You can have people involved if you want, but that's not required. First place is $10,000. So get on that, folks. You know, mm -hmm. this is a company that's trying to get okay, the Game of Thrones community into their website, and they're making a big push for it. So if, if enough people turn up, these prizes will be what they say. I suppose they might pull the plug on it if they don't get enough people, but with that kind of prize money, they should be able to attract enough people in there. Shea and I are among the judges for that, along with some of the Radio Westeros folks, along with some of our other good friends out there in the community, whose names we'll announce later. I didn't bother to grab the list right now. kind of forgot. This is a hectic last 22 hours. I've never gotten more emails and messages and tweets about an episode that we did on Sunday. It's easy to understand right that Kialo debate. It's The idea is sort of like they recognize that there are debates out there, and that yes. there's points on both sides, and they want to consolidate these arguments, yes. right? Kind of like you might go to Wikipedia to read about why they dropped the atomic bomb. You might go to Kialo to figure out why some people think that some people think that John is Rhaegar's son. In fact, it's good that you used the term that you brought up Wikipedia, because they are aiming to be the Wikipedia of debates. They want to have... the the Their goal was, they talked about how our, there's a lot of what on the internet, and a lot of how, but not the why. And that's the thing they're trying to get at. Because they they realize that the modern modern discourse doesn't work very well on the internet. Especially because of time-sensitive things. Like, somebody may say something really important, and then in a Facebook comment thread, that's buried. I don't know what you're talking you know? about. Twitter is perfect for <laughs> complex discourse. <laughs> anyway, so that's enough about that. We, we, we spent, I spent more time talking about that than I intended to. But with that kind of prize money, there's also second place and money all the way down the line. So really very much worth it. Check that out. We'll, we'll have more details on that later. But it's, it's, it's going to run only this month, though. Uh, it, it's gonna, the winners are going to be decided in September. Also, this is cool. We're doing something fun. We're doing a giveaway. GRRM box. This is a great collector's item. It's to, to, we're going to do a drawing. We're giving away five of these boxes. Four of them are the special edition boxes. And one of them is the limited edition box. To find out what's in them, you can click on the link that Ashea is going to be posting up. And the, you can see it in the images there. And we'll have links to it on our website as well. There's really cool stuff in here. They gave us one of them, or actually gave us two of them as a sample to look at. There's coins, there's signed lithograph by George R. Martin, there's maps, there's all kinds of good stuff in there. So I won't go through all the details because we're, we got a lot to cover today, but click on those links if you're interested. And if you want to enter our giveaway, we're going to give out one this week, two next week, two the week after, roughly speaking. Uh, to enter, send an email to westeroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com. It's our usual email address, but with giveaway at the end instead of just Westeros History. Again, that's westeroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com. All you have to do is send us a message with the title giveaway, and we will enter you in the drawing. Simple as that. Now, one other caveat with that drawing. They are not, they don't want it to, they're not willing to send it overseas, but we are. So we're going to pay the freight to send one of those five to an overseas winner. They only want to send it to the U.S. and Canada, but we're going to make sure that somebody overseas gets one of these. So we're going to, we're going to take care of y'all in that regard. Um, and if you do want to buy one of these, if you don't want to test your luck on winning them in this uh, giveaway, random giveaway, go to their website and use the co coupon code WESTEROSBOX and you get 10% off. So that's pretty cool. All right. 
blazing through these announcements. Also, I want to thank our History of Westeros first sword. That's Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper. Great guy. And of course, our Dragon Rider patrons who... We've got new art here for you. First of all, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, rider of Masla Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Looking good there, Art Biazani. Then we have our two hatchlings, Telenis the Talon, king of Gagasos, rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. Jinx of House Lier, green queen of the Rainwood, rider of Irogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Pictured for the first time. Thanks to Ed Shear for both the hatchling arts. That's really good stuff. And we'll be following their growth as the months pass by. All right. So let us go to, let's see, Team Daenerys and Team John. We're doing the, the locations a little bit different because people moved around so much, right? There was up and down and back and forth with characters going all over the place. And they, you had people that were in three locations all in one episode and it was kind of, that's kind of why we were calling this episode a bit of a blur, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's start where the episode starts. Let's start with the burning of the Tarleys. We'll see this image here, Shay is pulling up. I really thought Danny's speech was going really well until that last line <laughs> where she says, or but die. Like, it was like, oh, she was painting herself as the opposite to Cersei. Like, that's Cersei who does that. That's Cersei who does this. But now I'm going to say something just like Cersei. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> she basically just, like, was the anti-Cersei until she became Cersei slash Ares. Like, all at once. Like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> and it's the camera cuts to Tyrion. He's like, uh, yeah. I want to say, by the way, there's a parallel to draw here. A lot of people complain about Sansa challenging John in front of everyone. Here's Tyrion challenging Danny in front of everyone. Yeah, although he was a, he wasn't quite as loud about it, but you're right. It was a little similar. You're right because um, it was clear he was disagreeing with her, even if it was yeah. even if people couldn't hear what yeah. was being said. It was clear he was disagreeing. It, yeah, I, the thought crossed my mind at first, but like I said, I watched the episode three times, and you there was a shot of the audience as Tyrion's questioning her, and you can hear her voice. You can like see the people in the audience hear her. Saying, you know, again, quietly, but you can still hear it's audible. It seemed as though it was audible to the crowd, her arguments back to Tyrion. I see the Snow and Winterfell pointing out accurately that actually this episode started with Bronn and Jamie in the water. <laughs> and yeah, actually, he's right. That's that's true. We're going to get to that part later. <laughs> um, there's a bit more context here with Danny and Drogon with their bond. Like, Drogon was like reading what Danny wanted. You know, it wasn't like mind, you know, telepathy or anything like that. But clearly she could, well, maybe it's sort of like that. Yeah. Maybe but, it's not active. Maybe it's passive, you know? Yeah. But it was very much she knew, he knew what she wanted, you know, rudimentarily. Like, obviously, if she was, she couldn't give him complex instructions, probably. At least not that we know of yet. There's no evidence of that yet. Maybe it's there. But, yeah, He's, so that's kind of interesting. He seemed to respond after she said, okay, bend the knee or die. And a few bent the knee, but not all the rest. And he, without command, shifted four, roared at them, you know. It's like someone reflecting their emotions, like a dog may reflect its owners. Someone had asked uh, on a, a different thread that I follow on Facebook about um, how Danny's controlling Drogon. You know, if he's responding to, like, movements of her knees and her hands, she doesn't seem to use a lot of verbal commands other than Dracarys. And if she can control him non-verbally, why does she bother with Dracarys? And I, I kind of responded to that by pointing out that you don't always tell a dog to come here, but sometimes you do. You know, sometimes a dog understands your command, or sometimes you say it when you don't need to. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and a horse, I think, along the same lines. And I, I think that's not only is there sort of a mix between Drogon understanding what's expected of him, and sometimes she needs to say it, and sometimes she doesn't, sometimes she says it when she doesn't need to, and also some sort of 
passive telepathic emotional connection that they have that has been at least alluded to of Dragon Riders of the past, right? So yeah. Later on, we transition to Tyrion drinking with Varys. This is a this is an interesting scene. There's some interesting subtext here. Tyrion's kind of making the same excuses that Danny just gave him, but you can tell he doesn't really believe them. He's just mm-hmm. yeah. well, she said. That she gave them a choice, and then Varus grabs his wine glass and starts drinking with them. And yeah, I mean, Var- this is a pretty good scene because Varus is talking about how he lived through this. And he's like, that's what I told myself. You know, that's what I'm Tyrion's like. Ugh. And, you know, Var, I-, I asked on Twitter if people can remember Varus drinking before, and he-, he has, but it's pretty rare. And you think that the fact that Tyrion didn't even ha- offer him a glass is like, kind of an ex, like an expectation, like, I ex- they won't- don't expect that you want any because you don't normally drink, you know, so. It just shows Varus' state of mind that he's like, oh, I need a drink. <laughs> I particularly like this scene, and I think it's easy to get lost. I've mentioned this about a couple episodes this season. They're so packed with so many momentous, epic moments. But it seemed like this should have been really powerful. You know, these two characters trying to reconcile their responsibilities to the loss of human life. It's a really powerful thing. It's a moral question that a lot of the show is bringing up, moral questions like this. It's almost just like a comedic moment that just skip forward to the next big epic moment, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. think it's a really important it moment. Was. That was I happening. agree, and you know, and it makes me back off on the predictions that he might flip turn on here. He seems genuinely devoted to trying to make her see things the right way, and he there was no hint of pending betrayal. That that definitely said a lot to me about where Varus is right now. That said, it also reinforced the idea he presented earlier that. He wants to back a good leader, and he you you he saw Ares wasn't a good leader. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah. was struggling. He was having to justify himself letting this happen. If he has to justify himself letting this happen with Danny, he told Danny, look, I'll, Danny requested of him, tell me if I'm doing this. Don't sneak behind my back and connive. Let me know up front, yeah. you know. So we'll see if that happens. We'll see if Danny going, goes farther. But, of course, this is... In the short term, this might be a little bit moot. If Danny is pushing for an armistice, you know, if this armistice plays out, then in the short term, Danny won't be burning anybody. Or, you know, maybe that gives them time to get through to her a little bit. On the other hand, it might make her nervous and anxious and all these other things. We'll see. Especially if it doesn't go the way they want it to, which, as we'll get into later, a lot of reasons to suspect the armistice won't go the way they want it to. I see a super chat here from Aker Frey saying Davos dealing with the sentries was absolutely golden. Yes, it was. That was hilarious. I love that. Of course, it just fits. Like, of course, he's used to dealing with guards. He's a smuggler. This is like old hat for him. It was it was great. I love to see Davos do his thing. We've never really seen that since since he brought Melisandre up to Storm's End. We haven't really seen him yeah. do his thing. <laughs> Shades of Han Solo. Yeah, right on, right on. Like I said, so that might be moot, um, especially because of this letter and with the everybody turning their attention north and now Danny is invested in this northern plot because she's already clearly starting to like John like the her body language was she was a dis- little bit distraught at him leaving and putting himself at risk like this and after um and given what we just said about how her emotions are sort of tied up in Drogon that scene with Drogon and John was part about Danny not about Drogon that was part about her emotions so that's kind of, that's really important too so it's kind of confusing how this is going to play out. There's so many, maybe not confusing, but there's just so many possibilities. So we'll just have to see on that. Also, I got got to mention, shout out to Varus for his (laughs) fake slash funny indignance that the Fraterians like, well, did you read the letter? You know, it's like, it's it's to the king of the north. He's like, 
what does it say? It's <laughs> like, all right, well, it says this. Yeah, that was, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I thought that was, again, with that scene, it was uh, the way uh, Varus was tapping it underground. That was like a, it's the type of thing, it's the type of subtle thing to add some real, they, they didn't have to do that. Somewhere between the director and the, the actor, they decided for to have him tap it on the, the, like the a ground nervous like that. thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really good. Yeah, that was a good, tech, good touch. And that was really good, too, uh, talking about Danny, Drogon, and John there. A lot of times, Amelia Clark, I think, gets attacked for not being a particularly good actress. I don't have a particular comment on that, but I think she did do particularly well in that moment. There was this mix of concern. She's like, oh, God. <laughs> um, she was, one, legit worried the dragon might hurt someone, period. But two, it's John. She clearly was had some emotion toward him. And then that shifted to, like, surprise, like, He's not just gobbling him down. Wow, this is like a unique thing. It was a, I thought that was a really another really great moment on multiple levels. And that one maybe is one people will remember more. That was a little bit more spectacular than the conversation between the subdued conversation between Tyrion and, and Varys. Yeah, I mean, the thing about this episode for me was I had mixed feelings about this episode. I really liked a lot of it. And I think that the way to divide it, like if you were to look at the, the logistics of this episode, it's kind of particularly bad. You know, and this is a show that often messes with logistics. But... The character stories and the dialogue were particularly good. So it's like this is typical Game of Thrones. There's plenty of things that you can really viciously and totally criticize. But there's so many awesome things, too, that it's really just a matter of perspective. It's like if you really focus on those negative things, you can really you can really take you into a hole and be like, this sucked. But if you really focus on those good things, you can be, man, this was great. This was awesome. Yeah. And I've seen pretty mixed reviews on the overall the episode is doing really well. And like I said, we've never gotten more questions and comments after an episode before. But there are certainly people that thought it was meh. It's a thought that I've had in general has become a little clarified by this episode. A lot of times, a writer or a filmmaker, they have something they want to happen. They have an image they want on screen or a line of dialogue they want spoken, right? Yeah. And whether because it's integral to the development of the characters of the plot or because it's, you know, maybe a, a beautiful image or whatever, right? Yeah. And a lot of times, getting the plot and the characters to that moment, to that scene, is difficult. And I think there's a lot of scenes here where I'm like, well, how did, when did they, why did, you know, I, I question some of the logic behind how they got to this scene. However, what matters is this scene. Yeah. And I think they could have gotten to the scene. I think they could have done it if there are 14 episodes this season. Yeah. But there aren't, I recognize it, it's, it's stressful and it's frustrating, but I recognize that some of the things that they need to do to get these moments that they're showing us... you got to cheat a little. They could do it with many more scenes and lines of dialogue, but they don't have time or budget for that. But what really matters is the scene. Mm -hmm. And they've given us the scene, and the scene is really good. And I think so. you just have to accept that whenever you're dealing with an adaptation. You just know that these logistics... Because these logistical yeah. things can be described in a matter of paragraphs. But in the real um, TV, it's like, are we really going to show these armies marching for weeks? You know, like, mm -hmm. not that they have to go that far. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like, for George, it's a matter of... Just writing it down. For the showrunners, it's a matter of millions of dollars sometimes. So it's yeah. not, it's really hard. It's, this is why I just like tell people, just try not to compare them. It's so different. Not just because the stories have big divergences, but because the medium is vastly different. I so, will say, I, I do think it's still worth uh, thinking about and even analyzing these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Because one, if they're making mistakes, you know, I don't want to be blind to it. Yeah. Um, Fair but point. two, because sometimes it does spark new thoughts. You do start to realize why a certain thing happened or start to consider what might have happened in the time that passed. Or does that make sense? Like yeah. thinking about what might be a problem, sometimes you come up with an answer and a new thought, a new insight mm, or whatever. Good so. point. Super chat from Tad Heichel. 
This show can be CGI and dragons and wonder, but they do the little quiet things so well too. Things shows might neglect or overlook. I totally agree. People criticize their lack of detail, but they have a ton of detail. It's just yeah. some of the details they don't do, but some of the, when they do, you know, a lot of the ones they do are awesome. In Tad's case, he's, he's pointing out that John takes his glove off to pet Drogon and he has dirty nails, which makes sense. He's been working in the mines and stuff and like helping get all this dragon glass, you know, handled. So that's really true. And like you said, the tapping of the scroll, you know, little things like that, little, little details. They really, you know, it's, if we're going to criticize the lack of, in certain places, we should absolutely point out when they do it well, too. I appreciate that everyone's beard isn't perfectly trimmed. This, I don't wake up like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Soldiers in a field in medieval times don't necessarily have the... He's totally lying. He wakes up like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Looks like we have around 700 people watching live. That's awesome. This one, this shot, usually when we have a shot, Shay is pulling this one up here, John at the cliff, usually we pull up shots that we want to discuss just because there's something in there. But this one I just pulled because it's just so cool. It just looks awesome. And it sets up this, this next conversation. When John and, and when Drogon comes and just like comes at John, it's like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? It's like, is Danny just feeling her power because she just won this big battle and took out these lords? And it's like, you know, she's feeling strong. Or is she just trying to remind John what's up? To me, this was really cool. There's a really subtle undertone here. John was, he held his ground, but he was clearly nervous. Yeah. And it really reminded, given what he was wearing, which is a costume like his father, like Ned, not his real father, this has totally made me think of a man can only be brave when he's afraid. That quote is like perfect fit for that scene. It's just boom. Question here from Mallory Sand. Which which of the Storm Wolf Rider of Zulfric the back the Black Beast. And the question is, how do you guys feel about Drogon and John scene? I saw a lot of vloggers saying that John looked afraid, but I didn't see fear. I saw bravery. Well, I guess that's how you interpret it. That's kind of what we said. You can only be brave yeah. when you're afraid. So, so fear and bravery. Yeah, I think you saw I think I think both people are right. John was I mean, who wouldn't be a little afraid of that? Like viscerally primal fear, like you can you can steal yourself for that, but unless you're used to a dragon being up in your face like that. Even if that wasn't a dragon, if that had been an elven, you know, some some yeah. other thing you're more familiar with yeah. in the first place. Big some wolf. big creature right in front of you, <laughs> it, it can be daunting, you know? Yeah, right. Seriously? A monster like that could just accidentally, even if it's trying to be friendly, might just like bump you and knock you over the cliff or accident. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Watch out of that tail, man. <laughs> that tail can kill people. So here's another great shot that Shea is pulling up for us. Drogon's eye. Really awesome. Reminds me a little bit of, gives me a little bit of a Jurassic Park vibe. The giant, like, reptile eye thing. But I like Game of Thrones a hell of a lot more than Jurassic Park. Just credit to the, the visuals. Just overall, this whole episode, the cinematic moments, the yeah. landscapes, mm. but also the CGI for the dragon. I'm sure there's people out there who will complain. It's obviously, it's not perfect, but... Better than anything I've ever seen in my life. It's really and to good. include, when you look at the eye, you even see like the reflection of the sky. And, the, you know, it's like mm -hmm. not just the detail of the eye, but the, the light reflecting off the surface of it. It seemed to me like, speaking of the bravery and John's fear, I mean, she could probably recognize John was a little afraid, but he still touched Drogon, which has, I don't recall anyone else doing that. Maybe Tyrion. someone did Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion touched the other dragons. I don't know if he touched Drogon. Same deal. Oh, you're maybe right. not Drogon, yeah. You're right. That's close Tyrion, enough. Tyrion, Danny, and John. Yeah. Those three <laughs> drawn parallels <laughs> again. Hmm. <laughs> what yeah. does that mean? That was another thing, too. It seemed the skin actually seemed to move under John's fingers. Yeah, it was, it was really, really good. Impressive. I mean, he's probably touching some green screen thing, like a green blob, <laughs> instead of, you know, and they just a, add the later. A green dragon skull from the caverns beneath maybe. the... Yeah, that's true. And you think that Danny would be a little impressed by that. Like, she's already kind of like. Budding, a little attraction is building there, and that had to help. Like, 
standing up to my dragon like that, petting him, touching him. Ooh, that's brave. And she was a little concerned. Like, she had that look in her eyes like, huh, what's going on here? I wonder what's happening. He's going to touch him, huh? huh? Also, what a neat shot that was. That yeah. kind of behind her head POV looking down the neck of the dragon to John on the ground. Just think about what it took to film that or to even conceive that shot in the first yeah. place. Then we have Danny brings up the heart stab comment, which a couple of people pointed out that that's going to, if they ever hook up, which seems likely, that's when it'll She'll be like pretty clear there's, yeah. a, there's a stab wound right there. And or a few others, yeah. Yeah, and then he won't be able to, he got lucky because Jorah just came up and it was like, oh, I'll, we'll talk about that later. That's <laughs> just a recurring theme of something important being interrupted. Maybe Jorah will come up again. He'll yeah. be like ta- about to take his shirt off and Jorah, uh, by the way, ma'am, <laughs> by the way, my grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an, here. there's an even more important <laughs> interruption that comes later in the episode, but this one—it's funny to see that happening again. The, the old interruption thing, right when something important is about to be said—it's something that's in the books a lot. So I really give—I love when they give that nod here in the show as well. Okay, so let's talk about the message itself, though. The letter is a big deal. I mean, obviously, it's kind of what John was expecting. This news was. A, was expected at some point, except for who sent the message. He was like, oh, Bran is sending this message yeah. in, and Arya is alive. So that was that was shocking. Then he, you know, stands up and is like, I don't need permission. I'm a king, you know, and Danny again is, you can tell from her body language, she's like, she said that because she didn't want him to leave. Yeah, she didn't want him to I be agree. in danger like that. That wasn't like, and that was like, and that's what Danny does. When she's not getting her way, she becomes authoritative. But it was, it was half-hearted. You could tell that she didn't have the force of authority behind it. She was just like, I didn't give you permission to leave. You know, it wasn't yeah, quite like that. She's trying to come up with something that yeah. she could say. And she didn't argue back after the fact either. Yeah. So there's, as I said, it's there's different threads to follow here. So we'll come back to John going north. We'll stick with the shorter term thing here, which was the mission to King's Landing. And we'll talk about, you know, Tyrion and Jamie. We'll talk about the Tyrion and Jamie part of this later. We'll focus on Gendry and, and uh, Davos for now. There was a funny line where Tyrion arrives. Just another example of the great dialogue in this episode. Tyrion's last time I was here, I shot my father. And Davos says, last time I was here, you killed my son. <laughs> you know, you burned my son. And they're like, all right, yeah, that's kind of awkward. <laughs> and uh, Gendry, also hilarious. I mean, this was widely expected, but they gave it away in so many ways. I mean, it was like, his name was in the credits. Yeah. I mean, it was just right there. There was Plus, he was at the red carpet, you know, in that show. Like, they gave this away. It was telegraphed in a million ways, but that's fine, because... They didn't try to sneak him in. It was like, up oh, here he comes. He's on the blacksmith street. And he know. came in full force, too. He was <laughs> so, ready to go. <laughs> how quickly he's like, well, I mean, I'm ready. <laughs> Hear me out. Let me explain why I think you should come. I want to come. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't have to explain it. Just go. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Maybe you want to get a sword. I got a hammer. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, I got a hammer. Yeah, the still rowing joke. That's the most self-referential yeah. humor they've ever done, I think. Uh, at least it's in the top three. <laughs> so good. And damn, that is a huge hammer. Shay's going to pull up the shot here. I thought it was a little peculiar that there's a stag on there. I like that it has a stag on there from a design purpose, but it's a little, like, bold to put yeah. Robert Sigil on there yeah. like that. I feel like they kind of went back and forth in that one scene. I, I thought about it a few other moments in the episode, talking about, you know, questions about, mm, I don't know about this. Because he even asked, aren't you worried? He, you know, uh, Gendry asked Davos, aren't you worried about the gold cloaks? Yeah. Like, you know, they're kind of like, Pointing out that maybe there should be a concern for being recognized, and then he's got this stag on his hammer, you know. So probably wasn't that big a deal. I mean, I thought it was an odd detail, but if you think about it, I don't think it's too too big a deal because I mean that was it was the Baratheon regime that Cersei is like she's cloaked it all in Lannister. You can now, but it was 
Yeah. Davos is like, I haven't been here in years. Why would they recognize me? Okay, yeah. they explain it away. But still, you got to explain it away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and as Ashea pointed out, by, by the way, shout out to Ashea running our new microphone and everything, our new audio setup and keeping things together as always. But uh, she pointed out that it's not like Gendry's using that hammer. It's not like it was his blacksmith hammer. It's just like sitting in a corner. True. Like, he doesn't even have to say, if he was really pressed on it, he could say, yeah, it's not even mine. Like, I, it was, I got it from there. Yeah. And I just, you know. You could definitely make sense of it, but yeah. he is about to walk through King's Landing holding it out and <laughs> with no cover. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a funny moment, you know, that there's two gold cloaks. They got killed. They got their faces pounded in there, head and face pounded in. One of those was the same actor who played Ned Stark in the Bravosi play, The Bloody Hand. That goofy, like, what's that mean? What's that mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that one. That's the same actor. So shout out to him. Kevin Eldon is his name. I love, so again, we already, we briefly talked about this already. Davos's ha- handling of the smugglers and, I loved the, the, the fermented crab. <laughs> That's just really funny. Just I gotta to, give me some of that. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, not long after, we get John and Gendry together. And their conversation is great because they really bonded quickly. And despite Davos telling him not what to say, Gendry had the right of it. John respects the straightforward honesty. And you could see when he said, yeah. you're shorter. And then Gendry kind of like realized, wait, I just insulted you. And John just like kind of smiled like, I like this guy. <laughs> Which is very similar to Ned and Robert. When what Robert said, you got old. And Ned's like, you got fat. And yeah. And everyone's like, you can't say that to the king. It's like, oh, and they laugh. Yeah, it's so good. It's definitely a throwback. It's a total nostalgia moment. And it was awesome. But there's the subtext because... He says, I heard they were great friends. And then Gendry says, I heard they fought together. Well, in reality, they fought against each other. Cause, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> depending on who they're depending on who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, obviously Ned and Robert fought together. But Rhaegar, being John's real father, is, is, is actually Gendry, your father <laughs> killed Ned's uh, John's father. But let's let's not talk about that. Put a pin in that. Now Gendry notices John's sword. He's like, with a sword like that, you don't need a blacksmith. Now, some people are wondering why Jorah didn't notice the sword. This is actually an easy explanation. It's a two-part explanation. The first part is the slam dunk. The second part maybe gives it a little more context. It's got a different hilt. When Jorah gave it away, when he left it behind at uh, Bear Island, it had a bear's head hilt. And when it was remade for John, it now has this very distinct wolf head hilt. So I don't think that necessarily he would recognize it. Also, Jorah's... That sword is tied to Jorah's shame. He doesn't really like. I, I like If he sees John draw, he'd be like, yeah, that sword looks familiar. And he's like, yeah, I got it from your father. And he's like... <laughs> Never mind. You know, there's another explanation. <laughs> Gendry's an actual blacksmith. He probably oh, has yeah, an eye absolutely. for swords in the first place. 100%. He will be probably checks out every sword he sees, thinks about the quality behind it, where they got it from, who the blacksmith might have been, what technique was used. You can imagine that's just part of his character. Jorah's not necessarily checking out everyone's sword, but it makes sense Gendry would be. Also, he yeah, and, and Jorah's like Iron Throne here says it's like he's not looking around for long cry. He wouldn't it wouldn't even occur right. to him. Yeah. But like I said, if John ever draws it, he might recognize that part of it. You know, he might be like, that sword, the blade is probably, maybe pretty distinct. He certainly recognizes Valyrian steel. That might make him curious. But Also, it's, to how old will that memory be? Yeah. 10 yeah. years? It's a while. 20 years? Not that, no, not that sure, long. Yeah. No, because Jorah fought in Balon's Rebellion, which was 10 years okay. before uh, where we are now. Okay, um, questions from Rebellion Lady of Waves. Can we talk about the bromance for the ages? John and Gendry forever. Oh, the songs the singers will give us. Mm-hmm. The wolf and the hammer. But it was great to see the sons, quote in quotes, of Ned and Robert coming together. I imagine it was much Ned and much like Ned and Robert's first meeting. Yeah, I kind of kind of feel that way too. Yeah, because they got along the way they got along. They met at the Vale when they were both fostered with John Aaron. And yeah, I bet. Uh, I wonder if Robert appreciated Ned's you know quiet bluntness, quiet honesty, kind of like how Gendry's uh, 
John is sort of the same way. Yeah, so it's, it's just great. Okay, a uh, question from Lord Mark, House jo- Lord Mark of House Joseph. I almost said Lord Mark House Joseph. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about how D&D handled Gendry coming back? I truly applaud them for how they handled it. I think that's exactly how Bobby B's bastard boy would act and feel after spending a couple of years making weapons for the family that killed his father. I also think that John just found someone he can truly count on to have his back, and I love it. I expect Gendry will be safe for quite a while. Yet, meaning more than just John will survive this expedition. You don't bring Gendry back and make him a badass to kill him in the next episode. Well, I agree with all of that except the last part. They have done exactly that. <laughs> brought people back or in, brought, introduced them only to have them killed. The Red Viper is the most prominent example. I mean, this would be a much quicker turnaround on him dying. They might wait two episodes. episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do not share your confidence for Gendry's outlook, but I hope you're right. I would love to be wrong, but yeah, I'm worried about Gendry. We- I think if he does survive... I mentioned I think there's a plot line to put him in charge of the Stormlands. Yeah. But I think, I, I don't know, I'm going to say 50-50. That's where I'm at right now. I, as I said, we, we, we often do our Worry of the Week segment. Sometimes we do it in both Monday and Wednesday. Sometimes we do it Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. Sometimes we do it twice. Sometimes we do it none of this week. Last week there wasn't as much to say. We were all kind of like, yeah, Randall, Dickon, maybe Jamie, Braun. That was about it. Now it's like, well... All that, like, all the magnificent seven there, that plus the red shirt wildlings that are with them. All, like everyone except John is like, uh, uh maybe even John. <laughs> yeah, John maybe might get killed and get brought back. Okay, that's a yeah, possibility. You're right. I mean, I would that would to me that's not worried about his. Yeah, you know, as long as he's around. Still, I don't think he'll know. be removed from the show, but yeah. he might be removed from the show for a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really yeah. So I'm I'm worried about yeah. I think and fifty fifty is a good call because I think about that pretty much everyone in that group maybe you could say it's about a fifty fifty chance to survive yeah. maybe yeah. <laughs> roughly in that hour. Never. Tell I assume me. we're going to talk about that more later. Yes, we will. Yeah. Never tell me the odds. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about John and Jora. Just so many meetings and some of these, like, John and Jorah isn't a reunion, but it is a, a, a big meeting because they know of each other and they're, you know, there's some things they have in common, like the sword and Daenerys, you know, <laughs> these other things. And speaking of, Jorah is another one that very much reason to worry about him. They bring him back and he's now in the fold and then he leaves again. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Jorah may have some jealousy for John that may or may not, that's already there maybe now already and maybe could build if if given time. But he was also caught off guard by John immediately just saying, you know, how much respect he had for Jorah's father. That was kind of like, it's hard to be angry when someone's saying that, you know. <laughs> again, I, I haven't watched it three times. You have new thoughts come in. And that third time... I was I was putting myself in Jorah's shoes. I, just imagine a scenario. He's walking up. He's returned after all this time to Danny. She's out there with some other dude. Who's this dude? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, guy? imagine what would have been going through Jorah's head. Mm-hmm. And when he gets introduced, Jorah probably isn't like, oh, oh, it's just Jon Snow. He's probably like, what is it? Okay, Jon Snow, <laughs> what is he doing here? What's going on exactly? How long have they been together? Are they together? <laughs> Lady Ari Sand wants to know, do you think Jorah noticed the vibe building between John and Danny? Yes, 100% he noticed that. And John noticed a little bit of Jorah and Danny's vibe, too. He's probably he's a little curious what was happening Definitely. there. They hugged. Like, that's out of character. There's, there's hand kissing and yeah. all that. Yeah. They, it, like, generally speaking, a, a, a king or a queen, you know, they're reserved. It's usually their role is to not be particularly emotional, much less affectionate. Usually emotion is anger, right? Mm-hmm. And then Danny, also her personality is somewhat reserved too. And yes. John might expect Dror Mormont to be reserved. And here they go hugging in front of these Dothrakis and this Jon Snow character. They just hug each other. So yeah. clear, not only that they have a close relationship, but they're not embarrassed about it at all either. 
Um, also, it's it's funny to note. I think that Jorah arrives back at Dragonstone right when there's an arm, right when there's this proposed armistice. Right when Danny no longer seems to need yeah. generals, and she really <laughs> needed good generals. And now, now that she's in an armistice, so it's almost tragic for Jorah because it's like, hey, you could have been used as advisor, but now that there's this other thing going on, time for you to go with this dangerous mission to the north instead. Of is course, it, he volunteered to be fair, but still, yeah. There's a couple lines of thought that my mind had been on this episode was just out the window. I was like thinking <laughs> yeah. about how Danny's lost big segments of her armory, army, but she's picking up new military advisors. <laughs> Davos showed up, Jorah's on her way. They all left. All the military advisors left. <laughs> I yeah, was, a lot, I was, we, yeah, we, we had all a... these thoughts about how Jamie and Braum were going to be taken prisoner and go have this meeting and drag some. No, they're just downriver. And <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 to be fair to that, we one of the things we really predicted with Jamie and Braum was like, oh, we were like, oh, we could give them the ability to have Tyrion yeah. talk to them. We that still, still that. happened. Yeah. 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 So that was the thing that we were like, they, we were thinking, how can they miss this opportunity to do this? And they didn't. They just did it in a very different way that maybe makes less sense logistically, but was still very satisfying from a character perspective. Because um, that Janie, Jamie uh, Tyrion scene was awesome. Was. But first off, we have Danny and Jorah, very emotional, you know, and they hardly get any time together before they're split up again. But it was great acting on both sides. A lot of emotion in both their faces, really genuine, I thought. And Jorah and Tyrion. That was a nice moment, too. A little nostalgia, even though it wasn't even that long ago. That was like, what, season five? Yeah. <laughs> when they were together as with the slaver. And gives him the coin. Season five says, was forever ago. Yeah. That bring, was forever ago. <laughs> bring the coin back. You know, he says, that was nice. I really, that was a nice touch. I forgot about the coin. You know, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a very small detail of many. It's amazing that Tyrion still had that coin, but. Not not in like a not in, this isn't one of those logistical things like amazing that he still has it but yeah why wouldn't he still have it actually come to think of it big topic coming out of a location with the fewest main characters and now no main characters now that they've left at the end of the episode and that is the Citadel okay so I want to start off by giving another shout out to our good buddy poor Quentin aka Emmett Booth who's tweeted yesterday. It's cathartic to see Sam remind the Archmasters how powerful they are while reminding them how impotent they're being. You know, he's like, look how much power you have. And you guys are just sitting here making fun of things and talking about boring stuff. You know, like, do stuff, do things, get involved. There's a war happening and it's even bigger than you realize because of the Night's King and all this other stuff that Sam is, you know, hesitant to bring up until he gets angry at this point And he's like really pushing the issue. Um, so, yeah, check out poor Quentin on he's writing for Deadspin these days. That's another thing I particularly liked here, uh, watching it three times, thinking about things in new ways. I was drawing a parallel between uh, Ebros, Ebros, I'm not quite sure how to say that maester's name, and Sansa. Like, here, here goes Sam in front. There's like a meeting of all these leaders, right? And here's Sam just butting in and challenging the leaders like, no, no, this is what you need to do. No, no, you're not listening. No, this is what you need to do. He can't be like, okay, dude from nowhere that just got here, I'll just do whatever you say. Leaders, go do whatever he, you know what I mean? He And you could see it in him. If you watch it again, you see him like recognizing Sam is right. Or, or is at least worth listening to. Yeah. He wants to take yeah, action. Yeah, I was shut him down. Yeah. Right, and he even does say, I promise you. But all the leaders are like, oh, oh, oh this silly nonsense. He's yeah. mad. These guys in the north. And that's I think that's not far from how Sansa, her, her scene where these people are like... He's got to manage them a certain way. He can't just chop off their heads. He can't boss them around. He understands their personalities and their dynamics and his role as a leader. He's got to listen to their complaints. Yes. He's still going to do the right thing in the end, but 
there's a certain way to lead. Or there, man, there's many different ways to lead. And yeah. Sansa and Ebros have their way, and Cersei has her way. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I like the, the balance in that scene, is there were some of the maesters were just, you need more scribing to sharpen your mind. That was the most silly comment, like, come on, dude. <laughs> that guy is like the example of the Ivory Tower academic who is just oblivious to what's happening in the world and just won't believe anything that doesn't fit in his worldview. And meanwhile, Ebros is a lot more open-minded, but he still, I mean, that was a, a pretty valid, like, counter-argument. He said, maybe this is the Dragon Queen. I mean, it's not. He's wrong. It's not. Yeah, we all know we he's know wrong. We know that, but they don't know that. But it's, it's like, maybe the Dragon Queen is trying to get troops to go north. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, that's possible. And also, even if they weren't trying to do that, Cersei might take advantage of that, or someone might take advantage of that, even if it wasn't the, the intent. Even if this is true that there's this threat in the North, so on, so on, there's still concerns that come with that. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By the way, I don't want to get too political here, but it, the idea has been planted in my mind. I'm sure many people have considered the, the potential symbolic parallel to the Night King and winter coming to yeah. environmental concerns yeah. in the real world. And I really couldn't stop seeing it in this scene. And I wonder if they're deciding to latch on to that or if that's just me coming to terms with it. No, no, people it. have asked George and, about that a lot. That's been, yeah. Yeah, people have brought that up. And uh, and same thing, I will say same thing, people who argue against it, even if they're wrong, there are legitimate concerns. Like some of the things we might want to do to protect our environment or whatever, have a cost. They'll require us to not have as good a transportation or to spend more money or to change our infrastructure. Not that we shouldn't do it, but it's a difficult decision to make. And there's going to be people on both sides. And again, I don't want to be too political here, but I do appreciate when media has a meaning beyond entertainment, when there is some real world takeaways and understandings and insights for us to get. And I'm starting to realize how much there is with not only the idea of winter coming and what the Nike might represent, but also how the maesters are dealing with it and how the leaders are dealing with it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And it's it's it's, it's a parallel. There's a bit of a parallel because you see how the maesters in the South are dealing with it. And then you see like how people, someone like Tormund, who's like, which queen? How many queens are there now? Like, he has no idea. Like, he has no idea what's going on in the South. Well, he has some idea. Just like the maesters are like a little off there. All right, we got a couple super chats here to catch up on. First of all, from Jody Collins. Thank you, Jody. Thank you all. Love listening to you get me through the week. Question. Do you think John will have to lose Ghost before he can become a dragon rider? I never thought about it that way because Ghost is just such a small part of everything. And we get a little self-referential humor there with Sansa there. It's like, you can't just tell him to sit and stay like Ghost. Yeah, that was a good point. That <laughs> so was <good>. funny. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, I do not think he has to get roast. What what is this? Get roast. What is it? <laughs> get rid of ghosts. You really of abbreviated that. Yeah. There, yeah. Uh, Sporting slip. Did I really say get roast? Yes. Get, I don't think he has to get rid of ghosts. What is the name of this whole series? Yeah, song, song of, of ice and fire. fire. Yeah, not a song yeah. of ice or fire. <laughs> you can have both. John can have both. He is ice and fire. He can have ghost and Rhaegon or one of the Rhaegal. Yeah, Rhaegal. Uh, okay, and another one from Franz here, uh, five super chat here. Thank you very much. How and when will the info Gilly read about Rhaegar and Leanna reach John? That is a good segue. We were about to talk about that exact thing just after one or two other little tidbits regarding Sam and Gilly. So good timing. I thought that Sam leaving, you know, getting frustrated and leaving was a lot like John. Like rather than taking the time to convince them and, you know, m- you know, take a little more effort to kind of bring them over to his side, he just gets frustrated and leaves, which is kind of like what John was ready to do when he couldn't get Danny on his side until Tyrion's like, hey, this is an unreasonable, it's the same thing, this is an unreasonable request. Yeah. He's asking, he's literally asking them to, to send, everyone send their soldiers north. It's like, you can just write every lord. And I was like, that is exactly what Tyrion said. That is an unreasonable request. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say to give Samson credit, 
he didn't just now suddenly get frustrated. Like, right, you're right. He it's been spent some time in the shit, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Literally, yes. That's a good point. And here's, yeah, and he doesn't know, like they say, the one, like, kind of moment of, of humility or, like, goodness from that one crappy maester is, like, he's the one whose father and, and brother were just burned alive, weren't they? And it's, like, awful business. Yeah, so they, they, they showed some humanity there, which was good. Um, but yeah, that is rough. Like Sam hasn't learned that yet. Apparently he's left with still out not learning that. You know, I think there's another, a couple other things to, to take in here. One is that that line is important for us to get knowing that Sam mm -hmm. doesn't know this yet. It means he's going to find out at some point there's going to be some meaning to that. But also it might be meaningful. Sam leaving in and of itself might be meaningful to to Ebros and or some of the other maesters. The fact that he believed in this much, he just took off. Mm -hmm. That he's not just... You wonder if it's going to be there's no there's no brothers to bring him back like when John left the wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, he's a bunch of dudes in cloaks running, <laughs> tackling onto the ground. Yeah, Archmaesters are just running after him. <laughs> There'll be like previews of the next episodes, like Archmaesters just running really fast. Like, what is going on here? Yeah, and uh, so there was the quote that he says um, that we he he quotes his own father. You know, like I'm tired of reading about the achievements of better men. So we'll see where he goes. I mean, we'll we'll talk more about where he might go and how this might play out. And I think I mean it's probably just going north. But might go to Dragonstone. Yeah, he may go elsewhere. He may have stops up in the midtime. We'll, we'll talk about that more he on may Saturday. Go home. He might, his home's not far. It's on the way, pretty much. Yeah, wherever he goes. Comfort right? his family now that after we learn what happened. Now backing up a little bit to the the. Oh, the, sorry, sorry. The more I think about it, wherever he goes, is he going to take? Gilly and she's Jr. They're, with him? they're with him so far. They are, yeah. But they, they're having. Are they really going to go to the wall? Is he really going to take them yeah, to the wall? Yeah, I, I wonder if he'll drop them off at home. Drop them off at there. home. Yeah. Mm, that's a good point. Okay, so what's funny here is that there were a lot of false uh, alarms in the trailers from the, earlier in the season, like the like a lot of stuff with Littlefinger, for example, that dagger. Like, oh, that wasn't any, <laughs> that turned out to be very little. The Lyanna statue, like, oh, that's gonna be no, that wasn't much. But this mundane shot that we showed on Saturday, I, I don't, I don't mean to have it come up again. Just it was a mundane shot from the stills of this episode that just showed Sam McGilley looking at books. And who could have? And we were like, well, I wonder <laughs> what they're gonna find out. You know, maybe something important. But who could have known it would be this? Like, this is not something we saw coming. Here's a question from Bok Bok, Lord of the Chicken Dance. How did you all feel when the not-so-subtle reveal of the annulment of Rhaegar, followed by the interruption when something important is said, trophy? Yeah, that, that was certainly, especially because in A Feast for Crows, John does that to Sam. Sam is like, oh, blah, 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 and this happened, and Sam doesn't, John just says, long ago. He doesn't want to hear the rest of it. He's like, I'm done with this. And it's like, no, let him finish. The, that was an ancient <laughs> book he's reading. Let him read that. So this is kind of what happened here, because Gilly just stumbles on this huge factoid, and Sam doesn't realize it because she mispronounces it wrong, or she pronounces it, mispronounces it wrong? Mispronounces it, and, you know, and then everyone's like, wait, but, but. So I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I would be so intrigued by the idea of a book in a book, a character in a book, reading a book. I wanted to read that book. I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's clarify what was said and done in the scene because there is some confusion about it. And this is really important. In order to judge it, we have to make sure we have our facts straight. For what was said is that the High Septon did this annulment for Rhaegar and then performed a secret marriage and that this all happened in Dorne. So there's a couple odd things about that. First of all, in the book, in the book there's... Uh, the High Septon resides in Old Town. In the show, they've got him in at the... Well, they used to reside in Old Town. And now they have him in at uh, King's Landing. And, of course, now the Great Sept is destroyed, so it's all kind of up in the air right now. But the High Septon doing this marriage 
and annulment in Dorn is a little odd. You know, performing that, that, that's a little, that's unusual. I mean, not odd, like, logistically weird. Like, hmm, I wonder, they got, not only did they convince the High Septon to do this, which is unusual, because Rhaegar had two children, and annulment, when you have two children, is very odd. So, A, how did he convince the High Septon to do this? B, how did he convince him to do it in Dorne? He had to travel there, presumably. C, you know, then there's all the why and all this, like, what yeah. else is going on? What's in yeah. their minds and all that? Of course, there's some, you know, you could I kind of see how Rhaegar as prince, crown prince, could be like, look, do this for me, and I'll do this in exchange for you, or do this for me because it's really important, because, you know, my father needs to be overthrown, and, you know, because Rhaegar was, you know, moving to force his father to abdicate. There's a lot of clues that that was happening. Like, he was aware of his father's madness. He maybe acted too slowly, but he was aware... And to be fair, when war broke out, when Ares' reaction... Okay, so Ares was a madman, right? Everybody knows that. But it's easy to forget that this wasn't his normal MO. Sure, he burned people. He burned a few people. But he hadn't really burned high lords and their heirs before. This was a whole nother level of him going off. And so Rhaegar... It's fair to say Rhaegar did a lot wrong and caused a lot of this. But no one should could have seen even a madman like Ares reacting the way he did. It's really, un, you know, kind of... Surprising, especially, and of course, Brandon Stark comes in and kicks the beehives, like, come yeah. out and die, Rhaegar, that's, you know, literal treason, and you're, you know, you're saying that to a madman, like, ah, maybe you should have had a different approach there, Brandon. So a lot of people, not getting into the blame game, a lot of reasons why war, war, the rebellion broke out, and a lot of people share responsibility, that's not really the point. The point is, this change, this, this makes John legitimate, yet we don't know for sure that this can ever be, you know, where is this information now? Is it still at the Citadel? You noticed, I, at first when I saw the scene, I thought Sam grabbed the book and gave it to little, little Sam, and so they took it with them. But then you pointed out, no, that's wrong, that was a different book. And I double-checked, you were totally right. So we don't know if they even took that book with. We don't know if Gilly has it. So it's really hard to make this judgment. However, if he copied this book already, then, it's, then there is, it is there at the Citadel. So maybe the Archmaesters can find it later, and that might be relevant. But right now, it's just the, the, it's, it was. It seems like it was just for us, just for the viewers. It seems a little less likely for him to have copied it because remember, Gilly's reading it and asking him questions about it. How uh, many windows? How many steps? He would have already known if he had just read it and copied it down. He might have remembered that. So yeah, you're right. He probably hadn't copied that book yet. So yeah, I don't. She might have still taken it because she thought it was interesting. Mm. You know, well, we're getting close to a thousand. We got right oh, wow. fifty, and if we get to a thousand, we get the dancing, folks. Call your friends. All we need is uh, you know, I don't know. Around 150 more to get that fourth. We get that fourth digit. We get that comma. That's what we need. We need that comma. Don't throw me in the briar <laughs> patch. No, no, don't. A thousand. Oh no. <laughs> so I, I have a couple of thoughts. By the way, I wonder. Uh, we knew who did the ceremony, right? They, yes, his name is High Septon Maynard. It was High Septon Maynard. Okay. In the book, they, they're just the High Septon. From where he's from, or where he was. Like, did Not he go all. from? Did he go from King's Landing to Dorne to this ceremony? Or was he in Dorne in the first place? He wouldn't have been in Dorne in the first place. No. Hmm. We don't know that he was definitely in King's Landing. But he should have been. That's where the High Sept. That's where the Great Sept Baylor is. He would either be there or in Old Town, which is neither of those are in Dorne. I, I was supposing maybe they went to Dorne because. That's where they knew they could get the annulment done. Dorne's more liberal about how marriage and relationships work in it's the first place. It's possible Maynard is from, yeah, it's from Dorne. There's no way. That name doesn't say, doesn't like give us a clue to what region he's from. Although if he chose a Westerland's name, that would make sense. He would, so, and a Westerland, there's no Westerland's names really. They're just, Westerland's names are just and all names basically. So they're just, yeah, that doesn't tell us much, unfortunately. So there's a lot more to go with this, but it doesn't, we may not get any more, you know, in 
the meantime, you know, we may, the, the, maybe we get the rest through Bran or we, I don't know. I don't know where we're going to get more information on this, but maybe if the book is, if they have the book with them, you know, that makes it a lot, makes it a lot easier to kind of see where they might go with that. So in the meantime, the other big question here is how does annulment work in Westeros? We don't know. It doesn't even, it's not even super clear in the real world because it, you know, I mean, you can, depends on what country you're in and, and, and where you live and all these other things, you know, like. The Catholic, currently the Catholic religion, you can have an annulment after you have children under certain circumstances. But those kids aren't, aren't, don't become bastards after the fact. They're still legitimate. The Catholic Church considers them legitimate. Obviously, the Catholic Church is not the be-all, end-all here. And, you know, it's, but it's just one example from the real world. It's you know, and there's precedent to base something on. So we don't know what Westeros' annulment rules are. So we just really can't say whether by having this annulment, it set aside his other kids. Like, they were removed from the line of succession, which is would be huge. But in the show, they're both dead, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Like, so it's, it's John either way. It's just a matter of whether he's legitimate and whether that can be proven. So it sets that up, but we still it's still kind of hard to see how that will happen. It's something to think about particularly, by the way, in addition to the idea that, you know, John's the one true king, and, you know, and that might lead to thoughts about, well, how will Danny respond to this? Like... Is she, like, her motivation ostensibly is it's hers, kind of like stance, right? Yeah. Well, if it's demonstrated that it's not hers, to some extent, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. But so far, Danny doesn't even have possession of the throne yet anyway. So if it, if it did become clear to her that it should be John, I don't know how likely that is. But would she be like, oh, okay, all right, it should be John. I'll kneel to you. I, I can imagine John be like, <laughs> you know, you should really kneel to me. <laughs> you know, I think you're like... But also, think about how Danny might feel about some of her actions so far, just like how Melisandre might feel about some of her actions so far. Going on this idea, this commitment on this thing that you just know, and you're willing to kill and burn people over it, and then you find out, oh, I was wrong. How much guilt would Danny have over burning Randall Tarley for not bending the knee to her when he shouldn't have bent the knee to her, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really tricky. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there, that, Randall was right. He, his, Randall's speech was good. I know we're kind of backing up a little. Randall's speech was really good. He pointed out, he's like, look, you know, I there's no easy choices in war. Like And like and what he's basically saying there is, I'm going to be a traitor no matter what side I pick. And that's what Jamie pointed out to him, and he was right. So, yeah, it was it was rough. Um, it was a powerful moment, and I, and I liked the line. I, I, I thought in my head and tweeted, and then Randall said, there are no tough... Choices. There are no easy choices in war. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Super chat from Miguel Vargas, who says, Hi, guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Miguel. We will certainly try to do that. All right. Um, unless we have more questions, we will certainly have more to say on Rhaegar and all this stuff in the book to show. It obviously has big implications there as well. Possibly bigger implications there, although possibly this isn't accurate to the book. So that's part of why it's a big discussion. And also, we'll probably have more thoughts as we have more time to think about it. Uh, as no doubt, you all will probably have your thoughts evolve as the week rolls by as well. So let's go to Team Lannister. Yeah, so, yeah, J Jamie and Bronn getting out of the river. Eh, you know, it wasn't my favorite resolution to that plot, but, you know, again... I'm really just kind of past criticizing the show's logistics. Not that they don't have plenty of logistical flaws. I'm just like, yeah, they do this all the time. Like, what's the just what's the point in pointing it out? They're going to keep doing it. And if you just get bogged down in that, it just distracts you from the good stuff. And I'd rather just focus on the good stuff and just, just kind of say, yeah, the logistics often stink. Let's focus on the acting and the dialogue and all this other good stuff. So I will say I felt a little better about it than I might would have. I saw someone post uh, a cross-section image 
of like real world lakes and rivers yeah. where they have like shallow water that suddenly has a sharp drop off that sometimes even, it was a river too so it, it shouldn't even have a cuts flow. back any other direction and the reason for that is because the flow of water is like tunneling out the soil on the side but the mm. surface part that's there is there because it's sturdier right mm, and okay. so it, it and just has a cross section someone like superimposed jamie like down underneath with the horse above it. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes perfect I'm sense. I'm glad you so. took a look at that because I pointed that out. I was like, I don't know if we should judge this that harshly. I mean, I judged the scene harshly, like the, the last minute rescue and the fake sinking, which we knew was false, you know, false cliffhanger. But the the whole depth of the water thing, I was like, I don't know. I'm not going to comment on that because I'm no, like, you know, you looked it up. It was counterintuitive. Yeah. Just be fair, I didn't look it up, so I posted it. Okay, fair. I'll, 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 I'll dig that up and I'll post it up somewhere for other cool. people to anyway. see. Anyway. The one thing that might be a flaw here, though, is how does Tyrion even know that Jamie got to King's Landing? Yeah. Well, it's also, by the way, it's still a flaw that the, all the armor would yeah. still weigh. That's still a problem. Maybe yeah. Bronn is a master swimmer greater than anyone that's ever lived. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Plus so, the current of the water. Yeah. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's got its rough. It's, it's got some uh, some rough edges there, <laughs> that, uh, that explanation. But yeah, but the, but if we get to Jamie and Tyrion meeting, this, is, this was awesome. I mean, setting logistics aside of how this even happened... I think this makes more sense than some of the other stuff because Tyrion knows those tunnels. He was handed the king, and you know, remember Arya just walked out a drainage tunnel out, outside of the castle yeah. and was just out there by the shore. So maybe Tyrion took the same route. So that I can like some people are like he just walked right in there. Like yeah, actually that's okay. He didn't go in the city. He just probably just walked through the secret passage. It's also a spot that Davos knew. The smuggler knew what spot he was dropping them off yeah. at. So and so so it was really good acting. You could see that Jaime was really mad. But Tyrion's argument was having an effect and making Jaime split. Like, you could see, like, he kept bowing his head because he was angry, but he was also like, you have a point here. He was like, when Tyrion says, he was going to kill me, and he knew I was innocent. What the hell do you think? You cannot blame me for this. He's the one at fault. It's our father caused this. It was him or me. You know? Yeah. I Just so you know, I don't necessarily think that Jamie was angry and Tyrion had him coming around. I think that Jamie knew both sides in the first place. Mm. I know that for myself, and I believe for most people, that when you say something out loud, it helps to like clarify or even resolve an emotion. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can be torn internally on something. that You're mad about this thing, but you understand why it happened. And you might stew about it at night for weeks or your whole life. But if you get to confront the source of the anger and get it out, then after that... It's resolved, and now your understandings of the reason why are what are you were left with in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think this yeah, is the yeah. first time Jamie got to express the anger he had there. I think he did understand the other side of this, but still had the anger, understandably, of Tyrion having killed their father, right? And now that he gets to tell Tyrion he's mad about it, it's off his chest, and he yeah. can just have the leftover, Get the more positive emotions. You know? Yeah. And you said that you thought maybe this was a personal moment for Peter Dinklage here. Yeah, think about what he's saying. And that when in he's real talking, life, he's had to have gone through yeah, some of Like as an actor, having to read these lines, you know, yeah. do you think I wanted to be born like this? Is this, you know, you think I chose this, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I've seen him, seen him in some other movies, and one of the movies is he's The Station Agent, where this absolutely happens. He like, you know, he's at one point he's in a bar, and he's drinking by himself, and then he just starts ranting yeah, look at the little, you know, look at me, blah, 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 just, you know, I'm a spectacle or whatever, and he just, you know, kind of just loses it, and he could really tell, like, man, this is him channeling his own experiences, it was so, I mean, he's such a good actor that he doesn't need that, but he he probably can draw on that, you know? That might be part of why he's such a good actor. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, but, the, on the, but on the other side here, okay, so Shay's gonna pull up this cool image, I love this dragon skull, this is a still, um... And, uh, yeah, it's just awesome. I love the skulls. I'm glad we get to see them again. <laughs> and, 
It maybe gives a little bit of a Tyrion dragon hint there, just with that. But I love the detail. You can still see the hole in the skull. There's also <laughs> a little bit of them being Kyber surrounded tried. by dragons. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're both amidst dragons. Yeah, that's really cool. And But I think this is just a really bad plan. I think this plan <laughs> stinks. Yeah. Not, I don't, I'm not even talking about the go capture a white thing, which is kind of awkward too. But like, he's basically relying on trusting Jamie, not because... And and to Jamie to control Cersei, which is two like leaps of faith. Yeah. Jamie, maybe Jamie he can rely on to keep the peace. That I think is accurate. I think Jamie's word with Tyrion is solid. But Cersei has never Jamie and Cersei's relationship has never been more unequal than it has been now. Like Cersei is running things. She does not and she's not gonna listen to Jamie. She's already like kind of was like we got to be clever. We got to let's take advantage of the armistice. That's basically she was saying. So like Tyrion, I can't understand why Tyrion is trusting Cersei here. It might be his own weakness towards his own family. There, there could be a lot of things. Um, I, I do like that you point out that there's a lot of layers to trust. You know, usually you think of trust as being you know that someone won't lie to you or something like that, right? But there's also you have to have a certain trust in someone's competency. Someone might just screw something up, even if they're being honest about it. You know. Or not have the ability to accomplish something, even if they aren't screwing it up. They don't necessarily have the right resources or the people to cooperate with them. And so that Tyrion has a lot to trust from Jaime here, yeah. beyond just his honor or his word, right? Now, here's another reason they might go with this plan, that I wish they would just say this out loud and make me feel better about it. But in my mind, <laughs> I can understand that even if they can't convince Cersei by capturing one of these whites, which also assumes that the idea of capturing the white isn't too harebrained, but they'll convince other people. Right on the way down to King's Landing, they can stop off at every major house and be like, "Look at here's a zombie. We need your help up north. There's a bunch more of these." <laughs> they get to King's Landing and they show, show, show Cersei, and she's like, "Oh, get out of here with your parlor tricks." But some other person in court, some of those other lords, are probably shaky whether or not they support Cersei in the first place. Mm, right? They're kind of yeah. like, "I guess I better," but they maybe aren't really wanting to. And when they have another thing to a cause to care about. And some of them might be convinced. So how many of them might be a little superstitious or curious in the first place and seeing this evidence might. And in addition to gaining support by having this evidence, aside from Cersei, that support might pull away from Cersei. People who were supporting Cersei are now going to help. True. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of value to it. And even if it's maybe harebrained to get the white and maybe a lot to trust Jamie to get to his part in this plan, getting Cersei on board or whatever, the risk reward is pretty high. Hmm. This, it's not like there's some other better plan that they're like, nah, we don't want to do that. Let's do this instead. This is just the best thing they came up with. I like the idea that they don't have time to work everything out before having to solve it. You know, that's cool. Cause like if, yeah, if it just like they were able to so solve the South and then go face the North. Yeah. That would be just too simple and clean. Super chat from Patrick Barrett. How do you feel about Kyburn as Hand of the Queen? And how do you think the Citadel would feel about it? The Citadel's got to be very unhappy with that. Yeah, like he was rejected. He was kicked out of their order. I mean, at least he's not the Grand Maester. You know, that would bother them more because <laughs> he's in like yeah. you know, one of their titles uh, in a different role. I'm sure they still hate it, but it's probably a little, maybe a little bit less offensive because it's not, uh, you know, he's not being assigned a title within their order. So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But about Hand of the Queen, I mean, he's really clever. And he's obviously effective, and it is, he's an example of why Cersei is still doing pretty well, why she's still in the game, and why she has a lot going for her, even though she just lost her army and all these other things. And that's because, this is something pointed out behind the episode, that she's ruthless, and so is Kyber. And so they have, when you have less moral qualms, 
you can get you have more done. options. Yeah. You have, yeah, and, and you, you're and when you know your opponent has moral qualms, you know there's certain things they won't do, and you're like, well, I can do that, and they won't, so they can't match me on this. So that's that's uh, what I think we're worried about with Jamie and Cersei, and Kyburn is right in line with that because Kyburn is just helping her with these. How can we take advantage of this armistice? One thing I thought was really interesting is you know Jamie was like, hey, why? You know, why were you meeting with Kyburn there, you know, like that? And he's, she's like, he's Hand of the King. Why are you here? <laughs> but that was two times that Jamie goes to see Cersei. Both times Kyburn was just leaving. Yeah, one of them, I don't know if you saw it, put in a document. I did see that, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, Kim Renfro uh, pointed out that there is a line of dialogue. You barely hear it as Jamie's entering the room. Kyburn says... I could give you something. And Cersei says, that won't be necessary. So they're talking they're pregnancy, probably, probably talking, yeah. 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 That's cool. That's really cool. As far as their their plans, you know, Jamie is like, we can't win. You know, and Cersei's like, so what? If we surrender, we're dead anyway. Like, we have to try. It doesn't matter if we can't win. You know, like, we st- our options are the, still the same. It doesn't matter the outlook. And that's that's a good point. <laughs> now, I wonder, I'm a little bit worried about Bronn, not too much, because Cersei's like, he betrayed you. You know, he uh, set up this meeting without your consent, blah, blah, blah. If I was Jamie, I'd be like, "That's not betrayal. That's insubordination, or something like that." That's yeah. like that. I wouldn't go. That's not a. Tre- that's not treason. You know, he didn't cause any harm. You know, the, Cersei will feel this way. This is a threat to her power. The idea yes. that there's another person out there that's a player, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She's. You could see her concern about Bronn, what he might do if he would do this. You know, Jamie, I think is thankful that Bronn did this. You yeah, know? and it, it just like Tyrion said, like I had to meet you, but I knew you wouldn't agree to it. Bronn knew the same thing. Jamie knows that they know that and is happy that they did this. He he recognizes that he wouldn't have and yeah. needed to, you know. Yeah, yeah. But can't help but wonder if it force if it's foreshadowing. It reminds me of another another bit that happened earlier that I wonder is foreshadowing. Bronn told Jamie, "Only I can kill you." Yeah. You can't kill you. <laughs> only me. I wonder if that's something that might happen if they might get pitted against each other at some yeah. point. I'm confused about where Brian is right now. He's on one hand, he's like, "You owe me a castle." On the other hand, he's like, "I'm not doing this because of dragons." So I'm like, I'm not really sure where he's at these days. You know, I'm not sure where what his. You know, it'll be interesting to see yeah. where that resolves. Anyway, we got another super chat from Amanda Mitchell. It says, "Could Euron be the father of Cersei's unborn child?" It seemed to be Jamie's worry as well. Well, let's talk about that first. Uh, before we do that, though, let's talk about the reveal about Olena. That's because that was the build up to that. Yeah. You know, and O'Shea is pulling up this image here. This is Cersei's face. As she realizes Jamie's right. The way he's supposed to like, if you were Olena, you know, would you want Marjorie married to Joffrey or Tommen? And then you would be able to like, who's more, you know, manageable? Yeah. Who's going to let him? And she's like, okay, you're right. And because you can tell she agrees because she's like, you you know, I shouldn't have listened to you. I should have tor- tortured her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a good moment too. And it, and it kind of shows that, uh, in my mind, I, I can't help but wonder if Cersei... It makes sense that she already has it out for Tyrion, and there are some reasons to suspect Tyrion. And, she, and in the moment, she just wants to blame something, someone. Yes. Uh, and she probably, on some at some point, somewhere in her mind, considered that maybe it wasn't Tyrion, but it doesn't matter. He killed my father anyway. He's a little prick anyway. I just want him out of the way, you know. Yeah. But it, it Jamie made it clear to her, and and part of how he did it is by appealing to what he knew she would agree with mm-hmm. that Olena was plotting against him. Yes. Does that make sense? And it he can get the part of the argument that she already is on board with, and then just follow up, think about it from there, you know. So I thought it was well presented by him and well performed by Lena Hetty. Yeah, the reaction to it was really good. Speaking of reactions, you know, after she basically argues with Jamie a bit and then drops the bomb on him. She's pregnant. 
that totally changes Jamie's tune and he kind of gets his voice gets softer and he's like, well, what are you going to who are you going to tell people it belongs to? And she's like, you, I'm going to say it's you. That's that. You know, like, I don't, you know, the lion doesn't concern itself with the opinions of the sheep. And we're like, well, what is the Euron's opinion mean here? Yeah, this they is didn't huge. bring it up there, but I'm sure thinking about it. Yeah, know? I do not think that's the father of Cersei's child. It's possible, but there's not even evidence they slept together. And it seemed like Cersei was holding that as a reward. Not The marriage was what she said, but the whole thing, like, yeah, the sex yeah. and everything. Imagine that she was holding him at arm's length to get what she wanted, and... I just don't, th- I'm doubting that they slept together. Because I don't think, I didn't read Jamie's comment that way. I don't think Jamie was worried about who it belonged to. He said, who are you going to say it belongs to? Yeah. Which is a much different yeah. context. There was a, a reaction in the community, if you will, that maybe she's just lying. Uh, it was my first yeah, instinct, too. It is possible. When she first said it, I tell you, the thing that popped in my mind was was Mindy Kaling uh, in, in the office. Yeah. Uh, telling Ryan... That she was, she, he just was like blowing her off <laughs> and the door like, her. And she's, just and like, she's like, I'm pregnant. And he's like, what really? And like, off screen, she's like, no, But this no, thing, no. But, but Ken Renfro's grabbing that dialogue kind of means that it probably is real, right? Well, I, I think that it is real. Yeah, that that, that helps verify it even further. Um, but I think also that's not something that the writers would do. I, I, yeah. I don't think that Cersei needs to do that to keep Jamie on her side. I, I I doubt that. I did question myself. Maybe it is Euron's, but also kind of went through the same things you were saying. I don't think they slept together. I don't think she would do that. Wouldn't have had time for it. Even if she had, still she's definitely slept with Jamie too, so it might be uncertain. Um, but then going through all these thoughts, I was like, wait a minute. Euron is expecting this, you know? Like, And it's one thing to say Jamie's a father, but will they get married? Will that yeah, be a thing I, that happens? And what, what I imagine that's what she wants, but but then she would if she would she's then she can't marry Euron. There's no way. And, like would would Euron marry her? Would Euron be like, oh whatever, I'll raise someone else's kid? You know, like yeah. would he be cool with that? I don't think he would, but maybe he would if he gets to be married to the queen and et cetera, et cetera. But if not, then what does happen to Euron? What does he do with his fleet? Does he turn against Cersei? Does Cersei anticipate this ahead of time and try to take him out? We still do have uh, Yara out there and Theon uh, yeah. on a mission to save her. Theon didn't even appear this episode. Imagine either. if John is proving to the kingdom that there's a real threat. Would Euron believe in a threat? Would he want to join in the effort? Good questions. Uh, from Matt Paparella, Super Chat. Thanks, Matt. Is the death of Cersei inevitable? My gut tells me that Jaime would be the one to kill her. However, her pregnancy has complicated things. Yeah, that really changes the whole calculus on how Cersei will end. I do think her death is inevitable, but, or at least her exile or losing everything is inevitable. But the idea of Jamie killing her now is maybe can almost entirely out the window now. Yeah. It's almost entirely out the window. I mean, Unless the story is going to stretch out for yeah. a couple more years. They have a time jump. Which yeah. maybe it will, you know, like if, if each of these episodes in the next season are supposed to be hour plus, maybe they're packing a lot in and a year or season possible. will pass long enough for winter to be all the way down to Dorne or something. Yeah. You know? I will say do not expect Cersei to die this season. I think no, the way they're setting things up, it doesn't yeah. even look, it doesn't look, I mean, they could always surprise us, but it does not look like that. Alone. I have seen people point out how many parallels there would be if Cersei died in childbirth and maybe that is a thing that could happen. In fact, we have a question here from uh, Narlaws or Narlaws. What would, what if Cersei dies in childbirth, giving birth to Jamie's child and in effect being killed by Jamie anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Some people said that would be Lyanna Stark, you know, getting yeah, the revenge, revenge from the grave. Yeah. Well, then we'd have to consider this new kid a dragon rider, right? No, like a. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. And uh, we have a question, comment from Kelia Rose. Hope Cersei gives birth to a dwarf. <laughs> yeah, that'd be <laughs> awesome. I, I genuinely think that'd be. I don't know how they would ever have time to let that play out, but I think that'd be really awesome. Yeah, it would be yeah, a spinoff in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, a couple things that comment just that word inevitable.
adaptability reminded me of a couple things I wanted to point out. One is a, a shorter when we were talking about, you know, how responsible Rhaegar might be, his actions and da da da. Yeah. I think about this a lot because there is a certain inevitability to things. I got the thought from Carl Sagan. I've mentioned this a few times in the past how Chris Columbus didn't discover America. Someone was going to, Europe was coming. You know what I mean? There were explorers were coming across technology yeah. and sailing was, in, and when they did, it was probably inevitable that they're going to bring disease and slavery and so on. It's, you can't go back in time and take out Christopher Columbus and you're not really going to change history that much, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Ares is still the Mad King, right? If Sansa didn't tell Cersei about whatever, you know, all these different people who might have done or not done certain things at that one time when the dog, when uh, Arya's dog hadn't bitten Joffrey, oh, then everything would have been fine. No, Joffrey's still a little punk <laughs> would have found another still, way to... Right, there's all this... <laughs> Ed, Ned is still going to dig up who the Lannister kids are. These things were inevitable. Does that make sense? Yes, the, yes. The, the, the problems that stirred up in King's Landing were going to happen anyway. The problems with Ares was going to happen anyway. If Rhaegar yes, had just stayed yes. married and didn't have this affair and all this other stuff, there was still going to be this showdown, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Super chat from Franz. What about Maggie the Frog's prophecy of three children? Yeah, that might mean that Cersei dies first before she can give birth. On the other hand, that prophecy was already kind of messed up in the show. They already screwed that up because she had four, she's already had four children in the show. She already had a child with Robert that died in the crib. So, Prophecies can be tricky. Just ask Melisandre. <laughs> good call. Very good call. <laughs> okay. Where are we at now? So let's talk a little more about Kyburn, because there's some interesting things about this. First of all, you know, Cersei's, with Cersei's talk about being clever and doing what father would do, that just screams like Red Wedding or something like something vicious and sneaky and clever. And so what I'm my first guess is She'll agree to the armistice, agree to have some sort of meeting, and then maybe pull out some kind of ambush or try to do something to assassinate Daenerys. And Kyburn will certainly be involved in that. You know, Kyburn will be instrumental to whatever this plot is and planning it out. And also, oh, do we think that Danny's going to go meet with Cersei? Maybe not directly, but you, you I don't know. Yeah. You think I, they think might. I think John will. I think John will be there in King's Landing with a zombie, and he might have representatives with him. He might have Tyrion, even maybe Davos. He might have some other representative of Danny's. Um, if John's going as a king, you know, he's not yeah. going as representative of Danny. He's going on his own, but he may bring a representative of Danny with him. And I wonder how much Cersei. How much more Cersei cares about John than Danny? Because John maybe is claiming to be king of the North, but he's not taking any action towards her. Yeah. Whereas Danny is. She's not just attack, claiming to yeah. be king of all the Straight lands of attack. Westeros, but yeah. also she's directly attacking her. That's so. a good point. That's a good point. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see how she plays it. But I do suspect that Cersei's going to try for an assassination or a Red Wedding 2.0 type thing. The Red Armistice. I guess we already had 2.0 with... The phrase, although that wasn't a wedding. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it was a gathering. The Red Gathering. And what is... This is something a little more for Saturday, but I want to bring the question up now so you guys can think about it during the week. What does Kyburn think of this concept of an army of the dead? Yeah. Like, he's like, well, we've got one right here. He's probably bigger than most of the things they have. He's not bigger than a giant. But, you know, that's... He's got to have be fascinated. Like, from a scientific perspective, you know, he's probably like... Huh. You As know. you bring that up, he might encourage Cersei to have this meeting. He's like, let me see their example. My grace, it would be interesting to see. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So I really, really want to know about that. That's got to be cool. Because Kyburn is really creepy, but he's on that, like, he d knows how to do cool plot-changing things. Like, make dragon-shooting scorpions and, mm -hmm. and make, you know, all these other things. Duplicate poisons and all sorts of stuff. So... 
Yeah, I'm very curious about that. I really kind of thought we'd see some virus versus Kyber in this season, but that's not not even remotely happening. Um, I thought we'd see some Euron. Yeah, not yeah, first necessarily, but some Euron with yeah, Kyber. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never get to see that. It's too bad. Cersei also says that she knows everything that happens in this town, but she didn't know about Gendry. <laughs> Davos, right? <laughs> but she, but that really must have scared Jamie a little bit. Like, just but that's another thing I was saying. It's like it points out the inequity between them right now. Like, Jamie tries this thing, and Cersei's just like, "I knew all about it." That was you know? another moment, by the way. That a couple moments in that scene, Cersei let on some emotion. And yeah, we had just talked about how she's usually so stone faced and the subtlest control of her face can reveal so much but she had straight up you know like you know frustration and upsetness and yeah. then happiness when she embraced jamie she was smiling and then her face went cold she said don't ever <laughs> <trim> me again <laughs> yeah yeah okay so we'll have more about them later you guys can certainly fire off questions if you have more to say about that topic but let us do a few mid-roll activities here and then get back to it. We give a shout out to our Northern Champions on Patreon. We've got people who have selected Northern Champion as their uh, title. We have Jay Wilson, Winter's King. We have Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North. We have Winter's King, Lord of the First Men. We have Lady R. Ardross, Mother of Wolves. We have Sir Daniel, the Sneaky Russian. We have Sir Brian, the Returned, Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song. And we have Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone. Also, shout out to our pair of Blood Riders, who are awesome and very supportive. First of all, we have uh, Kohol Koei, Master of the Bow, called Sunpiercer, who has recently infected a deserving X with Grayscale. Good call. Good call. That's a good style of revenge. And Vorsaki, which is the Dothraki word for fire. And wielder of Firebringer. Wielder of... Fire or Firebringer? I've already forgotten. I'll have to look that up. Sorry about that. <laughs> Wielder of a Valyrian Seal Arak with a Dragonbone Hilt. Very cool. like that. I wish I had something like that. That would help me cut down my enemies, no doubt. <laughs> and also thanks to Sir Valentin Degen, who is creator of the Game of Predictions site. Go to gameofpredictions.org. It's a free Game of Thrones prediction slash futures market. You get free, po- you get, you know, virtual points. You make predictions and guesses against a, a market. And, you know, there's like a, a leaderboard and things like that. So it's pretty fun. He's trying to get that going. We're happy to help support that effort. It's free. You know, there's no money involved. We're not getting a cut or anything. It's just a cool thing. Pride and honor. Yeah. So check it out if you're interested and might be a lot of fun. Only thing more valuable than pride and honor is cool points. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a link on our supporters page that gives you to a, a video that explains what the producer's market's all about. Scroll down to find Sir Valentin of House to Jen. Uh, near the top of our supporters page, and there's a link to a YouTube video that explains what is all what he's all about, or what his site is all about. All right, that's it for that. Let us move on. Let's go to Winterfell. Someone asked what I was drinking. Oh, yeah. What are you drinking? I skipped over that today. Also, I want to show off my awesome shirt. Okay, yeah. Let's talk shirts for a second. What do you got? Dancing oh, Sean. This is the Pulp Dancing Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I've got my old school veil of my uh, Iron Throne Ned Stark shirt. I, I wanted to wear something with one of the fathers. His fatherhood was such a theme, or, or the, the deeds of our fathers was such a theme. I wanted to, it's my only Ned Stark shirt. This is kind of a funny shirt because it's, it's probably illegal to make. This was a band called Veil of Maya that just grabbed this. And I'm pretty sure they don't have the rights to that. But I saw it at a concert. I was like, well, they probably can't sell this, so I'm going to buy it. Dangerous <laughs> their middle name. Man. They live on the edge making t-shirts. You know, it reminds me, the Iron Throne reminds me, we talked about iconic images coming from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the idea just the image of westeros you know the the map or whatever and in the iron throne you guys pointed out it didn't dawn on any of us the stark wolf 
the Lannister lion, the three-headed Targaryen dragon. There's every house. There's like so many of them. Yeah. Sigils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of them are gonna be bigger or deeper into pop culture than others, but there's that's those are the that's the type of iconic imagery that I was talking about that I love and I will be so happy to see permeate culture. Mm-hmm. All right. So my drink, though. Oh yeah, your drink. I didn't have the standard. I, I have still my green protein naked drink, but I didn't have a green Mountain Dew. So this is a red Mountain Dew mixed with it, which I was hesitant to do. It's pretty good. Pretty good. You know, I'll try anything. I doubt it. (laughs) Okay, Winterfell. We've got Lord's upset with Jon being gone. This is, you know, I guess this is part of the the anxiety that everyone's feeling, the tension of the North. And Glover flat out says, maybe we should have chosen you instead. And Jon Royce is like, we came here for you, not him. And, you know, Sansa listens patiently as she tells Arya later and, you know, kind of lays it out like, this isn't how it works. And then we get to Arya and Sansa pretty quickly. And we have a question from Christian Mertes who says, I have an important question. How effing amazing did Sansa look in her heavy gray dress? Very simple yet stunning and, her, and the fabric moves really nicely. Very understated, perfect for Sansa Stark. New costume designers doing a fantastic job in my humble opinion. Yeah, I agree. The, the costumes are great and it fit the scene really well because immediately Arya calls her out for being fancy. And so mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. like, you like fancy stuff. It makes you feel better than other people. So it actually fits the scene. It wasn't just like detail, you know? Someone says, good God, that drink sounds like a horror. See, that's, that's more how I think, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I can survive horrors. So I, I drink horrors for yeah. breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of called this, but not, not, not nearly fully. I, I definitely, we definitely predicted, and I'm not saying it was a difficult prediction to make, that Ari would be difficult. She would be aggressive. But I didn't expect this level of viciousness. Like, yeah. well, I'll just cut their heads off. I was like, whoa. I was expecting her to be kind of unruly and to make like suggestions that weren't necessarily in line with how politics need to work. You know, but, and the alliance building, like said, this is how you get people to work together. And Arya, I just did not expect it to be that bad. I do think it was maybe a jump from where, you know, the, what I expected or what most people would expect. But it's been talked about ad nauseum how she's on this dark path. And it makes sense. It, it, I think it makes sense for someone on a dark path to have dark expectations. Mm-hmm. What we yes. see is Sansa doing a good job. She sees is Sansa conniving, right? Yes. The person who is more likely to lie to other people is more likely to be, to be suspicious of people lying to them, right? Yes. Arya is trained in all these dark arts and is conniving, hidden faces and how to detect lies. You know, it's it's where her mind is. She's in this dark place on this dark path and that's just what she sees around her, even yeah. her own sister, you know? Yeah, she just... Tax Sansa with like, you're thinking about it right now. And like, yeah, you just brought it up. Of course we're thinking about it right now. Like, but I think, and then of course this is kind of surprising that this is all a setup for by Littlefinger, you know, um, the whole let the hiding the letter and pretending to walk around in the behind the scene, behind the episode, it's revealed that Littlefinger is setting her up. It's not the other way around. Arya isn't like counter setting up Littlefinger. Some people have proposed that theory, but Unless the showrunners are being really coy, that's not the case. So she is being fooled, at least to this part. You know, at least to this part, it may, you know, it may move past this and she may figure it out. Like, I kind of expect her to. I kind of expect her to, to wise up and figure out that Littlefinger is, is messing with them. Might be too late, though. She might figure it out after she's already created a rift with Sansa or True. split lords in the north or something like You're that. You're right. The damage may you be know, done. The, the, by the way, think about this. To me, this is almost obvious. Those lords complaining to Sansa like yeah. that? Probably because Littlefinger talked to him. He's probably playing We those see him too. talking to them yeah. right later, and yeah. Arya's watching, yeah. And that may have been just so Arya could see it, but yeah. it was clear. Yeah, he like, might have just been saying, How's the weather today? Yeah, he's like, What y'all up to? You wanna have a glass of wine later? Yeah. You know, let's go get a let's go get a lemon cake. I, I appreciate it. People love the hate on on Littlefinger, and obviously he's done some bad things. 
And you know, the thing is, other people have done bad things. That, that's what bothers me, I guess, is that there's a lot of characters who've done bad things. And some of them are good guys and some are bad guys. And to me, I'm like, well, how do you, why are you picking these over these? I don't know. And uh, I guess it's because a lot of the bad things that Littlefinger's done is directed toward these heroine characters, right? You know, but one way or the other, I appreciate even the bad characters like Joffrey or Ramsay. If I, I, I don't want to put Littlefinger in quite a villainous category as them, but they still are part of why the show is interesting. If no one was a bad guy, well, we wouldn't be watching it. <laughs> What's going on? You know, Littlefinger stirs things up. And if all the bad guys were dumb and easy to defeat, well, they wouldn't be impressive or memorable or a challenge. I wouldn't be impressed with the good guys for defeating a bad guy who is not good at being a bad guy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I like seeing Littlefinger on his game here. Yeah, That's what yeah, I'm yeah. trying to build up to is I, whatever you think of him, I appreciate this turn of plot here, yeah. this intrigue coming in. Yeah, it was very surprising. Like, I was like, ooh, he's gonna get her. He's gonna, she's gonna get him. She's gonna get, oh, he's gonna get her. Oh, my. <laughs> I still think in the end, Littlefinger will eat it, and Arya and Sansa will probably be fine, but it may do permanent damage. You're right. Okay, so here's the letter itself. This is what Arya finds, and it's Sansa's letter to Rob when she's, after um, Ned is, before Ned is executed, but after he's been charged with treason, and you know, and they're like, she's like, can I just talk to him first? Like, Sansa, you disappoint us. You know, they won't let her talk to Ned and they make her sign, send this letter. And the letter says, Rob, I write to you with a heavy heart. Our good King Robert is dead, killed from wounds he took in a boar hunt. Father has been charged with treason. He conspired with Robert's brothers against my beloved Joffrey and tried to steal his throne. The Lannisters are treating me very well and provide me with every comfort. I beg you, come to King's Landing, swear, swear fealty to King Joffrey and prevent any strife between the great houses of Lannister and Stark. Now, Arya's not very understanding right now. She's not in a, in a place to clearly. be like... Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Arya's not in a place to be like, I get it, they forced her to write this. You know, I get it. But uh, even at the time when Rob got the message and Catelyn, they're mad that there was no mention of Arya. Like, what happened to Arya? Like, give us news of Arya. And so... Arya may notice that same thing too. Like, hey, come you didn't say anything about me, or how come this and that? Like, there's a lot for her to be upset with here. This letter, in the context of what she's already seen, is bad. But, right? But in the tr in, in truth, Sansa had no choice. She's like 13 and can't you know can't fight. Is held by Kingsguard. You know, like what is she gonna yeah. do? She could refuse, I guess. Maybe Arya would be that stubborn and not do it. But... And they were playing good cop with her too. Like Cersei yeah. was maybe on a genuine level was trying to be a mother figure to her. Yeah, know? that's a good point. Question from uh, Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. It's pretty apparent that Littlefinger is trying to sow discord between Sansa and Arya with the scroll he planted for Arya to find. And even though you see the two sisters squabbling early in the episode, I still feel like it's going to backfire on him. I feel like it's pretty obvious that Arya will realize that Sansa was forced to write that letter. Do you think that Arya and or Sansa will realize what Littlefinger's up to and play along with this game? Or do you think that they're going to really going to be so petty as to buy into his schemes and really be at odds with one another? I think they will be at odds for a little while, but I do think they'll figure it out. And here's the main reason is that when it comes down to it, when it comes down to who's lying, Arya will be able to figure it out. Arya's played the lying game like crazy. She spent so much time playing the lying game, and when it comes down to it, she's going to realize who's lying. Like, she might not be able to tell. I can imagine Littlefinger being good enough. Really good at lying. Maybe yeah. being aware of the lying game, right? Yeah. But Sansa's not, and so maybe she won't be able to tell if Littlefinger's lying, but she'll be able to tell if Sansa's mm -hmm. lying. Yeah, and of course, Bran, of course, can, like, I see someone saying Bran can yeah. get involved in this whole thing and point out what's true and what isn't. And of course, the, the sisters will listen to Bran and not... Little finger. <laughs> yeah. I also don't think. Well, they'll try to. He might not be able to communicate it well. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. I, I just mean think, anything he says. They'll right, leave. right, yeah, right. They won't. They won't. I also think that Sansa's less likely to be petty here than Arya is. Right. I think Sansa's trying to be forthright and genuine, and Arya's like trying yeah. to find some 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 drama. But know? it's possible that uh, she's Arya's right. Like if Arya's really this good at reading, you know, yeah. maybe she's just being hyper aggressive and, and accusatory, and because she's always had some issues with her sister. 
But maybe she's right. Maybe Sansa really is. Keep in mind, just because Sansa may legitimately have some ambition to be queen, I mean, who would dare have ambition to be queen? Right. What kind of a villain would yeah. dare have ambition to be queen? That's not the same <laughs> as like but say wanting she, taking action. Yeah. Right. Say she was. Uh, it doesn't mean she hates John or wants to take him out. You know, wanting to be queen isn't the same as you know wanting to take it. But but even if she did want to be queen and wanted to take John out, how much more of a villain is she than Danny or you know Yara yeah. or whoever else? Right. So yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, and speaking of those unhappy lords, you know they uh, <laughs> they won't be happy with John just going the East Watch and going beyond the, beyond the wall either. They're like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to be with us. But like Sansa said, he's doing what he thinks is right. And, you know, as much as we've uh, criticized his plan, you know, he's certainly not letting, uh, you know, he's certainly bold enough to do, take action as he sees fit. And that's something they can respect, hopefully. You know, I don't know. We'll see. I can understand that they're all very nervous and wanting their leader to be there. <laughs> the guy who's faced this this problem, these, the others and, and, and the walking dead, he's the one that, you know, has this information that they don't have. And so I do see why they feel a little lost without him. So let's talk about Eastwatch. Eastwatch is really cool looking, but let's see, uh, Shay's going to pull up this image of Eastwatch. Now, early on in the episode, we see it from another angle. We see the ravens flying past it, but you know, this is what it looks like. It's really cool. I didn't expect it to look like this. And it's like, uh, the ravens flying past it, and you can see that the it's you can see that it would be hard to walk around. You can see that if they were going to go around it, it would have to freeze the water. Now I'm still down on the possibility of them freezing the water. I can't say it's impossible, but you know it would feel kind of cheap. But you can see why how well defended that corner is. Like you can't just sneak around it. It's like really imposing and and you know cliff cliffy and craggy and all that. So really good looking. I want and it was kind of cool to see the Night King recognize what was going on there and kind of like knock Bran out of the ravens there like yeah. over That was kind of neat. Um I'm not exactly sure how that all works, but it was pretty clear what was happening. The Night King is probably a lot stronger than Bran. <laughs> One of my preseason predictions was that Bran and the Night King would have a psychic battle and I wonder if that was a first yeah. stage of it. Prelude, yeah, yeah. So we have, you know, Thoros and Beric talking to each other, and I, we, you, you talked about this ahead of time, like, maybe they wouldn't, these guys wouldn't be trusted, you know, when they showed up. Like, who are these Reloris? And yeah. you're, you're pretty much right there. It also jail. resolved a logistical problem. Like, where have these guys been this whole time? Okay, they've been languishing in jail. <laughs> All right, they fixed that. They solved that one retroactively. That's cool. Sometimes it looks like it doesn't make sense, and often it doesn't, but sometimes it does. This one worked out, and... A bunch of reunions in this moment. You got a whole bunch of people recognizing us. Gendry's like, no, those guys suck. Don't trust them. And Jorah's <laughs> like, Thoros? <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was so many. <laughs> and Tormund is like, Jorah? You know, you're a, a Mormont? Mormont? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I love Tormund's line about, which queen is that? There's two queens. How many queens are there now? Like, is that the queen who, with the dragons, or the queen who has, you know, sleeps with her brother? You know, <laughs> which is, you know, which is which? <laughs> and that, that wasn't just humor. Like I said earlier, that's just to show you how removed they are from everything. You know, they don't, they're not getting news up there. And uh, to remind you how far away it all is. Kind of, kind of minor, but it also was a good way to bring us into the end of a conversation. Like, they don't need to go through all this again, but we need to know that they have gone through all this which can help remind us that there's probably other things that they go through in these conversations off screen that we don't always get to see. Then the, you know, then this, this actual mission, it's cool to see the torment and others are like ready to go. They're like, yeah, we've been, we've been wanting to fight because that's their homeland that's been lost. I, you know, think about all these things. They're 
kind of exiles in a land that doesn't really necessarily welcome them, and they lost their home. So they have arguably more than anybody a reason to want to get at it, you know, and, and take back what's their homeland. And uh, so it's cool to see them jumping to it. But it makes you nervous, right? Like as we said earlier, there's all these 50-50s that we're throwing yeah. on some of these characters. There's more than just the seven. There's some, you know, redshirt wild, unnamed redshirt wildlings. And some of those guys were carrying the gear. Some people were like, did they even bring like a cage or a sledge? They did. You could see it's very, it was kind of hard to see. But the, there was the main seven guys that were kind of marching in like a wedge formation. But then there were some other wildlings behind them, maybe five or eight more. I don't know. But they were hauling stuff. They had gear. So, you know, I mean, one of those things was a sledge. What's kind of odd here, though, like a couple things to think about is like maybe how we can predict who will live and who won't is based on what it would do to the story. You know, like I think John is, whether he dies and comes back again, he's going to be around, no doubt. Like that's the most safe as far as his arc will continue one way or the other. Tormund, I feel sort of good about Tormund surviving because again, he's the only named wildling. Sandor, eh, Gendry. I, I think eh. he's going to live for Click Gamble. Yeah, I think, yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, that's, so, so Sandor is maybe pretty safe. The two Reloris, Thoros and Beric, might be the most likely to be doomed. Yeah. Like Beric, of course, and especially because they're the most fatalistic. They're already like, this is why we're here. We've already accepted it or whatever. They're the most purpose-driven here. Yeah, they're the most, like, believing in the higher power aspect of it all. You can imagine they've had other visions. We know that they've seen certain visions and they shared one with Sandor. They may have had other visions, much like Jojen. They might have already seen their own death. Yeah. And they're just living it out. That's know? that's a good point. Yeah. And, and Gendry, you know, like we said, he's tough to figure. I kind of think Gendry's a little more likely to live than not, but he could easily just, like... Not. I mean, it could just be that simple. Gets yeah. rid of his gets rid of his claim to the throne, you know, just ties it up in a boat. It'd be sad. But you know, if they want us to be sad, they want us to be sad <laughs> sometimes, and that would make us sad. Another thing about like another thing that makes me worry about Jorah is okay, so let's say they bring the proof down, right? Danny probably needs less proof. Danny definitely needs less proof than Cersei does. Um, even if the proof matters to Cersei, you know, it still might just be an opportunity for her. Ah, Jorah, if Jorah dies. That makes it really personal for her, right? That's I saw someone yeah. mention that on Twitter, and I thought that's a good point. Because Jorah, like, that's the only way this gets really personal for her, is if she loses someone she cares about. You know, I mean, to, she kind of cares about To John. the undead. To the yeah. undead, yeah. That makes it so, more of a threat to her specifically. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have drawn parallels to this group heading up north to the Magnificent Seven. Four of the seven died at the end of the Magnificent Seven. Ooh, Four of the seven died. Yeah, hmm. So, so if only three of them could survive, who would they be? John? John. Sandor. John, if Sandor's well, undead, did he truly yeah, survive? Yeah. I don't, I'm going to say not Sandor. I'm gonna say he stays in a show, but doesn't survive. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to give Gendry and Jorah. Okay. Yeah, you, so you agree that Beric and Thoros are like the most... Uh, Tormund? No, I think Tormund. Yeah, I think Tormund's more likely. Yeah, I, th- I think Tormund, John, and... Yeah, and, uh, Jorah might die. Either Jorah, and either Jorah or Gendry. But if it's four, uh, like obviously that's a random kind of. It doesn't have to be the Magnificent Seven, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so y'all, um, cer- certainly, if you feel like it, send us your predictions on who you think's going to die. This is one of those unusual spots where there's like <laughs> quite a level of different predictions that can be made as to who's going to die. Like it's like, so certain that people are going to die. It's someone like <laughs> this character. This, this episode was so awesome because of all these characters and interactions and reunions. But it's also got that like, oh boy. This isn't going to last long, though, is it? <laughs> Another thought I had with how things might play up here, especially because from the trailers, it looks like a pretty dire spot, that they're all like on this little ledge, with, just surrounded everywhere by, yeah. by the zombie mass. 
one thought that I had that we talked about a little bit was the idea that the zombie mass might just be moving past them. And one way that they or like some they of them might them. live exactly is that they're almost oblivious to these seven random dudes, whatever, we're marching on the whole on the whole south, and these guys aren't really in our way. Yeah. And Tell them if incidentally, they're in the way, there might be some fights by the ones that cross paths, but they may not all be there to hunt them down specifically, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, that might change if the Night King sees them and recognizes John. It might change, but another thought I had and things that may come into play here that might turn it in ways that we don't expect are Benjamin Stark or yeah Benjamin Stark uh, being the wall like it's got to happen right he's got to turn up and then it's also possible I think that the children of the forest maybe they make some sort of last stand show up out of nowhere Hmm. with some fire grenades that like clear (laughs) a path that yes that rescue them at the last minute yeah there's definitely yeah it's definitely possible and we'll go into greater depth on that with trailer shots we'll actually grab trailer shots as we always do on our Saturday Predictions and Theories episode, and we'll be able to get to a little more level of detail that's maybe not appropriate for some people who don't want to go that deep into being into seeing what's in the trailers. Um, interesting things that were not in this episode or in recent episodes at all. Euron hasn't been seen for a little while. Um, Unsullied are still, I guess, trekking across the Riverlands there. You know, that was... Maybe Danny was going to be like, hey, send your... Send her Dothraki up to go find the Unsullied and hook up with them and bring them back into the fold. I mean, that's something they could do. Like, the Armistice does either way. That's one thing that the weight is positive for Danny for. The Unsullied get to come back into play, which is uh, it kind of works against what Cersei's hoping for. But also there was no Masande. I guess yeah. this wasn't a whole lot for her I to do. I took a particular but... note because there was a couple times when they were all gathered around the painted table discussing her plans. Yeah. And everyone was there except Masande. Yeah, that was, that was a little odd. I'm, I don't read too much into it, but it was odd. Uh, yeah. I, I, it made me start thinking about how maybe she doesn't have a role there. She's like the translator. That's, you know, like she, she doesn't even translate. But then I started thinking, no, her role has gotten deeper than that. She's definitely an advisor to Danny and a friend to Danny. Maybe it's just random. Maybe it's not. doesn't mean something. But I couldn't help but notice that she was absent from all these meetings and plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was a little bit peculiar. Okay, some questions. We are, we're through the main portion of the episode. We're going to take uh, Q&A questions. So certainly fire away if you feel so uh, inclined. We have so- several that were loaded in ahead of time, starting with Lady Air Airdross. Do you think Danny won't go into detail about what she had done? Didn't, oh, do you think Danny didn't go into detail about what she had done with John because she didn't want him to know, you know, maybe she wouldn't approve of, he wouldn't approve of her actions? Maybe she was regretting it a little bit. Also, I just wanted to say that I love the touch of Drogon blinking at John. That's something animals do to tell others they mean no harm and are relaxed in their environment. Yeah, that is a nice touch. Yeah, it's true. Like that's certainly like the like cats will do that because they don't have to close their eyes. It's not like they have to blink. It's more of an active thing. Like cats don't have eyelids. Yeah, they they hold know. that stare if they're about to attack or yeah yeah or even I mean, if they're about to run because they're yeah. predators. Yeah, like they yeah. don't they do not like like there is not a blink. Yeah, they are focused and ready to go. So that that was a nice touch. I didn't really realize that, but you're totally right. That's cool. Also, she wants to say, finally, when this is all over, Davos could make some cash selling his <laughs> Davrodisiac. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. the pun of the stream right here. <laughs> Thanks, Lady Eredros. Winner, winner. Yes. Um, but why, yeah, I think maybe she didn't want to just tell John about the burning of the trial. I think she gets that that's not the best thing to spread around. <laughs> it's not something to brag about, certainly. Like, yeah, let's just, you know, maybe she was, she had some time to think about it. You know, maybe she was like, maybe Tyrion had a point there. I don't know. It's hard to say whether she was waffling on that at all. We'll see how she carries herself going forward, you know. I think, honestly, as much as anything, I, I expect details will be spoken about 
in real life, when people do cool things, they talk about the cool things or bad things or scary things. They're, they're going to talk about it. But in this moment, they can't from from a, a presentation, from like a filmmaking standpoint, they don't need to go through this right now. They yeah, don't have time in the episode true. for this right that's now. That's true. So. Mark Joseph wants to know, do you think Sam took the book that he was reading? Yeah, we talked about this. We're not sure. On rewatch, he was taking more books, not putting books back, and it's doubtful he would leave anything behind. Hopefully when Brand tells John, Sam can back up that claim. Everything's in place for John's legitimacy to be proven. Yeah, it's just really not sure if he took the book or not. Like, I kind of think he didn't because it was just a book that he was like, this is boring crap. Like, I don't care about that. It's just a bunch of step counting and window counting and poop counting. Like, why do I care about that? But it's entirely possible... Gilly brought it. She was she was enjoying that book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's entirely possible Sam brought it even though he wasn't in. Maybe he just wanted to make sure that he covered his bases and was like, yeah, maybe there's something in here. So, I don't know. I just don't know if he brought that book. But and I definitely the, agree that with the last statement that it's in place. One way or the other. Like, the Citadel can find these books, you know. We, we I mean, not some special insight that we had, but many people assumed that Sam was given those particular scrolls described for a reason. So far, we haven't seen a particular reason for that. Whether Ebros wanted him to find out who John's parents say, I don't know that that's a yeah. thing he would know or care about. So maybe it's a stretch, you know, maybe it was just random, you know, busy work for Sam. But Sam definitely seemed to be picking out certain ones to take with him, separate from whatever he had been given to scribe. And so the showmakers, this is a, a great tool for them. It's a great storytelling tool for them to reveal things to us that are necessary for plot points to come together. So whether Sam grabbed that book or not, you know, I, I remember thinking a long time ago, like maybe even season two or something, maybe we'll just never know. Or sorry, maybe John will just never know. There's yeah. lots of things that people go to their grave with. Lots of yeah. important, there's lots of secrets, if you will, that I have, that I have no reason to ever tell anyone, that no one else knows or has any reason to tell and may just never be known to the world, you know? So far, the details have been all for us. It's all. It would add to the irony and tragedy. <laughs> if if John dies, yeah, and just never having known, we know, yeah, we, he knows. No one that no one in the story knows he's legitimate, and only Bran knows who the, the parentage thing. I mean, mm -hmm. well, besides maybe Hal and Reed or those two, yeah. those two like uh, um, birthmates, birthmates, and <laughs> there are a few wild cards out there, but they definitely have had minimal, if any, foreshadowing. So yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, another question. Doesn't the letter being the one Sansa sent under duress make Littlefinger scheming less impressive? Arya saw Sansa the day Ned died. Arya knows Sansa was basically a captive. It shouldn't be hard for Sansa to explain that. Seems like much ado about nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't exactly know what Arya is, how she's going to take it. But so I do kind of think that it won't work. But it, like we said earlier, it may still cause damage. And someone else pointed, in the meantime, what if, uh, in the chat here, I saw an interesting comment. What if Arya just takes it on herself to, like, kill Glover, you know? Or yeah. kill... She seemed quick to suggest rolling heads, right? Quite possibly just take it into her own hands, and that could cause all kinds of problems. Like, yeah, if she kills Glover, if she kills Royce, whew, that would be very unexpected. We've been, we've been predicting Royce to take over for Littlefinger. Like, that's why he's getting lines. Or what if she kills him, and then it's still Littlefinger, and that's like, ooh, that was, that's not what we expected at all, is it? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. That's That's interesting, yeah. Um, okay, so another one. Here's from Callum Evans. Do you think that the show is showing the different personalities of Ice and Fire with Daenerys using fire and acting hot-headed and bringing me and cold and emotionless and Jon falling somewhere in the middle? Yeah, just a, just will back up a little bit on um, Bran. I rewatched some of last season and one of the reasons Bran is so cold and emotionless, we have to remember, it isn't just because he lost his family 
or his his companions, and he feels guilty about that because he you know kind of triggered it in a way. But because remember this scene, the three eye ravens like it's time. Bran's like for what? It's like for you to become me, and he's like, am I ready? No. <laughs> he says, no, you're not. So that would explain why, like, he got all that information fire-hosed into his head. So, yeah, that would have an impact. It would, it would get him emotionally as well as sh- kind of move him off of normal humanity by even more than we may have been thinking. Because, uh, yeah, because of all that stuff happening to him. When yeah. you mentioned that to me, it made me start thinking about what the nature of past Three-Eyed Ravens had been, how they took mm. it on, how much life experience they had at that moment, and how much the Three-Eyed Ravens might have saved the kingdom in the past. How many times have the Nightwalker started a movement that was staved off by the Three-Eyed Raven, but this time he just can't do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, next question is, I'm hoping this doesn't, from Thomas Pep, from Helma Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel, I should say. I'm hoping this doesn't step into the category of predictions and theories reserved for the Saturday episode, but when Cersei says, if we want to beat her, we have to be clever. We have to fight like her father would have. Is it just me, or do you get images of the Red Wedding dancing in your head? Well, as I said earlier, that's absolutely what I got in my head. So yes, we're on the same wavelength there. I don't know that it'll be, I don't think it'll be a wedding. I, it's like hard to imagine who would marry who in this scenario, but some sort of gathering. It's where easy there's to imagine. Ambush. I don't know if it's likely. <laughs> I well, can I mean, imagine between Danny, Cersei wearing Euron, Danny marrying John. Well, like, no, I mean, but that wouldn't be a Red Wedding scenario. It would have to be someone on Team Lannister marrying someone, you know, like yeah. Cersei and Dan. Cersei wouldn't be invited to a John and Danny marriage, you know. <laughs> well, I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of like all right. Fine. Hmm. Tyrion marrying Danny. <laughs> Tyrion marrying Cersei. That'll <laughs> <laughs> yikes. <laughs> so yeah, I do think something is up here. Ter- Cersei is going to do it. Jamie won't like it, but it's going to happen because Cersei's got more power. I mean, that's that's kind of how I see the, the broad strokes at this point. Obviously, the details can change. We shall see. We got a really good number of people today. Thank you all very much for showing up. And thanks very much to Ashea for kicking butt on the production again as we're getting used to some new things here. As we say goodbye, we'll be back on Wednesday. And we will, of course, do our Saturday stream as well. So let's take care of that. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the video intro. Thanks to uh, Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for our music. Thanks to all of you all for attending and asking questions and having fun in the comments box there. There's a lot of good chats happening anytime we're talking. There's lots of other conversations happening as well. It's part of the fun of joining us at the live streams, is participating in these conversations, not just listening to us. That's part of the value. Um, also, thanks to our start off with our patrons list. Our peers of the realm include the mysterious BR, that's Hand of the King. And we have, uh, oh, Sean, this one's for you. Lady Suzanne. Sinistral, Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned holder of the left-handed Valerian shears called Penance. Hand of the beard. Right on. Hand of the beard. Cool. Then we have Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kebethian Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the, of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. You know, I do see someone talking about how there was no Theon this episode. Yeah, we, we breathe. I said, I said that, like, I, I threw that out there as, like, a one-sentence thing. But, yeah, it was a little peculiar, but I guess, again, they just didn't have time. But I imagine that they'll have a little resolution to that. Hopefully. <laughs> Theon's got to do something. Um, might be when we finally get some more Euron, actually. We also have Lord Osborne of Castle Werewood, spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands, Crownlands, and... 
overseas. Motto is our roots run deep. Lord James Tuttle is king of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. Small Council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws, Ashea is Queen's High Council, it consists of Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Painkiller. Of course, she reads yours on the days that she's in front of the camera, and I read them on other days. Lady Maya of House Swan is Mistress of Whispers. Elia of Upstate is Master of Coin. Uh, we have Grand Maester Bryce, who's waiting on a full nickname that she's working on. And we have, for now, who's also working on her name, the Lady ES, we'll call her Master of Laws. We do have a super chat from Perry here in Mexico. When did Sam let Bran through the wall, as he stated to the Maesters? Uh, that would have been, I guess, season four? I don't recall. It's season four or five. But he did He did do that. Yeah, that absolutely. Remember, they, they ran into each other, and Bran made Sam promise not to tell who he was. And that's why John just now learned that she's alive. Another super chat from Pino123. Ashea, queen of the tots and protector of the stream. <laughs> <laughs> now she's queen of avocado. Yeah, she's moved on from the tots, but that's 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 she earned that title. She still gets to keep it. Uh, thanks for that one. That's our good buddy there, Pinome. Uh, moving on, we also have King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. We have Grand Maester Clark, protector of wisdom and beards. Our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. We also have our lords and ladies in their castles. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Nyaki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains of Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting is of the Green Blood and Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan is of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashland Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Hill, Halls of Castle Hillcrest, is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, holder of the Corporal Snuggle Bunny. Lord Brandon Brewer of... I swear you laugh every time I read that one. <laughs> I don't blame you. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, sworn Ailsmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. Brian the Defender, Lord of the Spearfort, and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch. Motto, strength and courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is first forester of the old gods, sworn to House Ironwearwood. Motto, listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. We also have Ashea's Queen's Guard, led by Lord Captain Commander Hayma Hellman, Sellsword Sentinel. Sean's Beard Guard, Lord Commander George the Golden. Sir Joshua Oakheart, the White Oak, and Lady Rita, sorry, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Nice motto, Dance the Fervor, right in line with Sean there. Perfect, perfect. And certainly last but not least, we have our Night's Watch, our History of Westwood's Night's Watch, which is led by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Stranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. First steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentine called Pale Wind. And as has been a recent trend, I've been grabbing a few other names who don't normally get shout outs just to get them in there because they're just so fun. Let's go with 
Dolores of the dour demeanor. <laughs> Let's Tom go with Thomas the Woodhead. How about Sir Clayson's Six Fingers? How about Maester Mandy the Reader? How, servant of the Tor. How about... Oh, someone else is asking about Sean's shirt. He explained it earlier, but he'd be happy to explain it again. Oh, where did you get it? I'm almost positive it was Redbubble, but it might have been T-Fury. Okay. Well, Which, by the way, I recommend both those sides. I agree. Yeah, we've both got a lot of shirts there. Uh, Maestress Arha. Maestress. I like that term. Arha the Silent, who shattered a link of Valyrian steel. Archmaester Jason, heretic of the Citadel. And Shadowbinder Jasmine, Lady of House Gate. All right, folks. That is it for today. We'll see a lot of you all on Wednesday and or Saturday. Hope you guys have a great week in between all that. Come back to us with some good theories and questions, because as we know, you can't think of everything in these first 24 hours, so we'll have some more to say later in the week, and I know you guys will too. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, DancingSean. At DancingSean, that's right. Do that. Help him grow his following. He has been very active on Twitter, doing a lot of fun things with your haiku and all that. Twitter is fun. It is a, it is a time sink, but it is fun. <laughs> okay, everybody, on behalf of Ashea and Sean and everybody else, you guys next time, Valar rewatches.